our recording on February 11th, 2023, two days before this is going to be uh, uh, uploaded, and that's a special day. Can you tell us why, Russ? It's our two-year anniversary to the day. Yeah, that we recorded our first um, ever podcast called uh, Hello World, which was only about 30, 40 minutes long. It was really short. It was a short one, yeah. I remember yeah. we were thinking about it a lot, and we should do this, talk about that. And we said, we just got to sit down and get the ball rolling. Right, exactly. And that's what we did. We just It was really a sample episode. We just did one um, classical and one jazz album. Now right. we're up to three each, and that seems to be enough. We, it, seems, it seems to be <laughs> ideal, really, for the, for the week, you know? Yeah. I don't yeah. think I could do more than that, but uh, we're in a, a pattern now, rolling along. Right. Two years, and this is episode 102 yeah. of Adult Music. And as we say, it's the podcast with music for the mature mind. Right. Bringing you new releases, classical and jazz, six every week. And those minds are much more mature than they were two years ago. Let's hope so, anyway. I hope so. In some ways. In know, some ways. In some ways. Maybe more antisocial, but more mature. <laughs> There is that. In any case, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. We don't talk to people anymore because we're too busy listening, <laughs> too busy listening. listening to music and talking about it. Yeah. Now, I should mention our um, our first podcast was introduced to the world on February 15th, 2021. So we still have that anniversary coming up. We actually delayed by three days oh, right. before we uh, put it up. So That's right. Because I think uh, after we recorded that, you said, oh, we, by the way, we need a music theme. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and you so, had to come up with a music theme in those three days. Came up with a music days. theme in, uh, which I you did st- it all in one day. Yeah, yeah, which you still hear to this day. To it's this pretty day. pretty great. Yeah, maybe someday I'll make a, a new one, uh, get around to it. Okay. Yeah, we got a nice uh, logo now, too. We'll to- got a logo. Thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island. Yeah. Glowing neon. and Against a brick wall. Yeah, things have been rolling <laughs> along nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, last month was our best month of downloads yet. This month is off to a slow start. So yeah, I kind of wonder what happened there. Yeah. If you're listening to this now and there are any back episodes you haven't heard, Go back and check them out. Yeah, and, get your uh, friends to listen to this one. Really. Get your friends to listen to us. Yeah, we want to hear the new. Uh, want people to hear the new uh, the new albums. Absolutely. Well, before we get into today's program, as always, I want to remind all of our listeners that in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, our favorite CD quality streaming platform can also follow us there. They have podcasts too. Just look us up, Adult Music Podcasts. Get the playlist and podcast all in one place. Now, if you don't see the full description or the links aren't active on the app where you listen to us, you can always come over to our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow there for this and all past episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you do listen to us. And do tell a friend, like Mike said, word of mouth helps us get new listeners. Mm. If you give us a ranking or write a short review, that also helps us get noticed and listed in the category recommendations, and that helps us get a bigger audience as well. And you can also come follow us on Facebook now. We've got a page there. You can get extra info on new releases, a little bit of musical humor during the week. You can also interact with some of the musicians whose recordings we discuss. They're often interested, and we get some comments back, and you can take a look at that. And you can leave a comment there, see our handsome faces. Maybe we'll even take a couple pictures today because we're live in the mountain lair. Yeah, I kind of wish we had taken those pictures already because I'm already uh, two beers in <laughs> and I'm just not going to look as good That's later. Right. <laughs> we, we've already started celebrating we started our celebrating, second anniversary. And I spent all morning 
getting some <laughs> ribs uh, smoking low. Yeah, it's a big party here outside. Wish we you were here, listeners. Enjoy those when we wrap yeah. things up. And well, finally, then other than Facebook, if you'd like to get in touch with us directly, we'd be happy to hear from you by email. Our email address is Adult Music Podcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. Uh, send us a message, any questions, comments. We'll be sure to reply. Before we roll into today's program, a few other podcasts that we're collaborating with to share like-minded audiences. We've got Tom Gauker's Something Came From Baltimore. It's a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast with a lot of famous musicians in those genres. Check that out. Also, famous interviews in neon jazz. That's by Joe Domino. He's got artists, musicians, and writers among other people that he interviews. And then for Jazz Heads, same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Habra look at several versions of the same jazz standard each week. They play snippets from each version, discuss the history of the original and the different versions. So you can find links for all those podcasts at the end of the description. And also we'll have little promos from them at the end of the podcasts if you stick around to the end. Yeah, and we have... um... We have some kind of sad news in the music world. We just heard about the death of um, the great American songwriter, Burt Bacharach, whose music both of us grew up with. Yeah. Yeah. In the 70s, you couldn't get that sound off the radio, all those arrangements. And um, sometimes they were a little cheesy, but they were always really good tunes. They're good tunes, cheesy arrangements, really. But I've heard better ones like, well, I shouldn't say better. That was really the style then. Now they're a little more kind of updated these days when people do them. Interestingly, I saw yeah. on Facebook there were some people doing uh, tributes to him. I think I saw Dave Stryker oh, with yeah. something there. And also uh, Al Miola had a version of uh, Do You Know the Way to San Jose that he played right. in San Jose. Um, so. yeah. And apparently uh, Elvis Costello is doing a residency in New York and he opened his uh, set with two Burt Bacharach songs. He did a project with Burt Bacharach years ago. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So he actually got to meet him, which is great. Yeah. You know, two really noteworthy songwriters there. I guess that's it. That's about it, huh? Let's let's get I to think it. That's it. Yeah, we're ready to uh jump into this piano heavy episode. A lot yeah. of other interesting things as well. But piano is the common instrument that we're gonna hear on all of these recordings. And we've got quite a variety here. And um kind of an old master kind of theme in kind of. both piano and jazz as well. You know, when Russ told me um we're gonna do he's gonna do all jazz piano, I kinda had a the interesting idea to have the piano in three different settings in the classical end of this podcast. Solo piano, piano as a chamber music instrument, along with other instruments, and then piano as solo instrument in a concerto. So we've got mm-hmm. all three of those today. And yeah, some interesting um Things here. We have some real giants on this program today, too, as far as classical music goes. Giants from my youth who are now getting into their yeah. uh, later mm-hmm. years. Uh, the first album that I'm going to talk about is an album by Maurizio Pollini, uh, who is really one of the giants of the 20th century. These days, we have a lot of um, pianists who have this, this um, almost um, transcendental technique. You hear a mm-hmm. lot of this from... Uh, but I think Polini was among the first to have this real ironclad technique. He played uh, Stravinsky's uh, Petrushka for piano solo that was considered the most difficult oh, wow. um, you know, uh, composition for it. Right. That was in the repertoire. And then later on, you had pianists like Marc-Andre Amelon starting to tackle like the uh, Charles Valentin Alcon like concerto for solo piano. I actually made a joke about this in my book, Extreme Music, uh, where I 
my composer Alberto Narcisi writes a piece called uh, Piano Concerto for Solo Cello. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just really funny to have like a piano concerto, I thought, for a single instrument, which Alcon did in the, the uh, over-the-top romantic years of the 1840s, 1850s or so. Anyway, so Polini was one of those pianists, and um, he's still with us, thankfully, and he just celebrated his 80th birthday in 2022. Mm. Now, by this point, usually pianists are starting to sort of, you know, the technique is starting to kind of fall away a bit. But uh, Polini, actually, on this record, this is, I should mention, this is uh, Beethoven, piano sonatas number 20 and 29, 29 being the hammer clavier, the the biggest, longest, and uh, really... Mm. Maybe we could say most demanding, physically anyway, of uh, Beethoven's piano sonatas. That's Opus 101 and 106. This is on the Deutsche Grammophon label, who Polini has been associated with throughout his career. He started, I think, on EMI records and then went over to hmm. Deutsche Grammophon in the 70s. I think he, he started his career winning the Chopin competition in the 1960s. That's a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now, these works were recorded It's last year. I'm guessing that means 2022. I probably should have written the year down. And as fans of Polini will know, he recorded them rather famously, the last five Beethoven piano sonatas, in 1977 as part of a set uh, you know, of those sonatas. So these um, re- were recorded in the Hukulesal in Munich, Germany, the ones that we're going to hear today. That recording, though, back in 1977, was one of the great recordings of these works. Not because they were definitive in any way. I mean, there were probably performances that people would like mm. more. These were pretty unforgiving performances. They were, um, how can I say, they're highly intellectual performances. Now, Polini, his father was an architect, so he... There's all I had read that you know so growing up with this sense of like form and structure mm. that he kind of applied this I don't know if this is true but this right. is what people have said but it's I can hear that it might be that he picked up a lot of this mm. idea of form Polini wasn't really a sort of hard on sleeve sort of player the way like a guy like Arthur Rubinstein was you know so he was he's not a crowd pleaser he brought something entirely new though with those um, Beethoven piano sonatas at the time and something we really don't hear today as deeply as he um, presented it, and that is articulation of the architecture. Now, when I'm he- of the work, now when I'm hearing um, a Polini work, uh, a Polini performance, I'm always thinking about this um, mm. because he's he's a very, I don't want to say a very intellectual pianist because he does have emotion to his playing. He's not like anodyne or anything like that, but um, the large structure of the piece comes through, and uh, it made his performances satisfying. Like you were getting kind of a meta version of the piece, okay. Right. And this is from the 1977 um, recordings. They were really, they they were pristine. They were intellectual. Like he had this fantastic technique. And these were pieces that um, they weren't as, even though it's Beethoven, they weren't as recorded as often as they are hmm. today. I mean, all the great pianists played them, but there were fewer great pianists then. Right. You know, now it seems like everybody's. <laughs> Got got this fantastic technique now. Yeah, and also we're just hearing everybody now too. There are a lot of uh, smaller labels. Right. Back then, you only had your your three big classical labels and then maybe some others. So this was especially satisfying in these uh, late Beethoven sonatas where the shape can be hard for the listener to follow. They're kind of difficult works to pin down. Right. Yeah, any real late Beethoven can be. Polini was an excellent guide to that on his earlier recording. Now... 
I think it was two years ago, three years ago, that he recorded the last three piano sonatas again. And now he's uh, completing that, the last five set with these two. So we don't know. This may be the last time we ever, last recording we ever hear of him. But um, so he's um, revisiting these works that he recorded very famously in 1977. Now, as you can imagine, these performances aren't going to surpass those, but they might add something to it. I mean, those were pretty Hmm. definitive for what they wanted to be. But what do we have here? With age, with experience comes more insight. And maybe we're getting a little bit more of that. I can't really go into it too deeply because I've only started listening to these this week. And I really haven't listened to those that older recording for quite a while. I really should go back to it. I've got it on my shelf collecting dust. I'm going to have to take it down again and give it a listen. All right. Well, anyway. Let's start. We have the shorter uh, Piano Sonata number 28 by Beethoven in A major, opus 101. First, first movement. And the first thing I notice here is a bit. there's a bit of distance between the piano and the mic. Yes. Gi- yes. <laughs> giving an impression that you've walked into a large room and are hearing the piano at the other end of the room, mm-hmm. which is nice, I guess. The opening is played with a kind of floating quality. It accents the dotted rhythm which is played in 3-4 time. It's an interesting, careful interpretation, like Polini wants details of the way the rhythm and themes interact or hold together as a whole to stand out. And he's excellent at making sure you hear the opening theme without underlining it in his playing. This is how you know you're in the hands of a really experienced pianist. This is a bit slower than we usually hear it, but it has me hanging on every note and chord. At 2 minutes and 42 seconds, the tone darkens to minor, and Polini produces a slight crescendo with a slight change in tone. And there are a lot of details like this up to the cadence. We get the second movement. This is actually a pretty short sonata in its four movements. We get more dotted rhythms, faster this time. Uh, the opening chords thunder out while the rest are well articulated, but rather smudged by the room ambience, not by Polini's playing. I remember I was reading a review of this and somebody said um, that he's kind of you know shading the tones. I don't think so. I think they're all crystal clear if the ambience on the recording were closer mm. or better captured. Because I think that the sound sort of evaporates into the space a little bit. Right. The tempo is slightly restrained. Um, lots of subtlety, which will be the key word for these performances. They are very subtle. And really the... The thrill of it really is in the subtlety. So if you're a close listener, you would really enjoy this recording, or these performances at least. It comes across to me as sort of like, you know how if, if you've ever had something traumatic happening to you and everything slows down before that thing happens, like your car is about to crash and you see everything in slow motion? Right. Um, I'm getting this sort of quality out of Polini's playing here. Like he wants our perceptions to slow so that the detail can register in our mind. So he's playing a little slowly and he's effective at achieving this quality i think where you're just aware of so much more than you normally would be just because of that moment and Polini, i think is trying to create something like that here at least that's how i am interpreting it i don't really mm. know what his intentions are at two minutes 55 seconds we arrive at the quieter middle section and the dynamics on the independent voices are slightly graded so each can be followed at around the four minute and twenty second mark, the opening repeats, and I'm very impressed to know that this is um this is an eighty year old Polini playing this. His technique seems to be pretty much intact at this age. He can't possibly be capable of doing the things he did when he was younger. Because some of them were pretty amazing. The mind is sharp as ever, too. Apparently, big crashing chord at the end. We get to the third movement, 
And uh, this one is marked uh, Langsam und Senzugstvoll, or in Italian, Adagio ma non troppo conofetto. Uh, this slow movement is very brief. It's like the opposite of the uh, upcoming Hammer Clavier, isn't it? <laughs> which, whereas, which has a very long, slow movement. Here, I feel like the tempo is a bit quick. Yeah. Polini is always attentive to the legato of his lines, making sure phrases connect. I like the echoes between treble and bass in the first minute, Polini inflecting these lines sensitively. At the two-minute mark, the theme is heard at the beginning of the first movement, comes back in, in order to separate these first three movements from the fourth movement fugal material, which we go directly into. That's the fourth movement. The fugue simply starts without a pause, using the opening material as its theme, then it breaks it down. There's some rapid passage work toward the end of the first movement that smudges in the acoustic. It would be nice to... I should say the first section, not the first movement. It would be nice to hear the detail more clearly, but this is what we've got. Just before the three-minute mark, a fugue begins in earnest, and again, the Polini intellect and technique is there. There's some beautiful light articulation in the high end at the five-minute mark, a pretty sound. In the sixth minute, we hear two loud chords followed by the fugal theme, the chords serving as a sort of separation between the previous material and this ending material. Polini does so well to make sure everything is hurt structurally, and all in all, this is a thought-provoking performance, and deeply satisfying too. I just wish the sound was a little closer. I wanted yeah. to hear more. We heard all the detail. It's not so far away that you're not hearing detail, but you are hearing some smudges, and I don't think that's Polini. He doesn't that. seem to have lost any of his strength. Yeah, uh, and he, you know, he really plays hard with a lot of dynamic contrast with you know the softer sections. I found the third movement there. He surprised me. Being quite fleet yeah. in the movement uh, faster after that beginning section. Hmm. But some places you want a little bit more clarity right. in the delicate nature. And it seems like the sound reflections from the room are hmm. sort of coming back over the new sounds a bit too. So you lose some of that clarity. Yeah. Anyway, despite this quicker material being smudged in the acoustic, I was actually left a bit breathless by this performance. Uh, Polini is a pianist who's like we won't hear again because he's unique. He's very individual and we won't be hearing much more of him either. So it's it was a real sort of hmm. thrill for me to hear this. I'm pretty amazed by the detail and sensitivity of the performance though. And again, it's attention to the the meta sort of structure of the work. Okay, next, tracks five through eight, the last work on the program. The mighty Hammer Clavier. Uh, piano sonata number 29 in B-flat major, opus 106. You, you don't hear this very often, only from uh, pro, you know professional pianists. Cause it's, <laughs> it's a very long, very hard, very demanding yeah. work. And it's also demanding to listen to because it's got a lot in it. Polini is going to make that a little easier for us, though, than it normally is. So we have the mighty opening, the big gigantic chords at the beginning come, that usually come mm -hmm. crashing down. It's taken quickly with some distance again between the microphone and the piano. So what happens because of that is that the contour, which usually comes down, da -dun, da -dun, da -dun, it usually sounds like this big, mm. you know, rock-like sort of uh, chords coming down. But in this case, the contour, because of the acoustic, comes across rather softly, which is unusual. I think we're meant to hear it that way. Like he's giving us a different sort of um, perspective here. Uh, the speed is on the fast side, which was also surprising because this is going to be a, a, this is a difficult movement to play mm. and he's playing it at a pretty fast speed. 
and the opening gesture is rather blurred in the acoustic. But once the music softens for the searching second theme, the sound is light and clear, not as reverberant, so it comes across very clearly in the acoustic. Uh, Pliny's all about the musical through line here, you know, the architecture of the piece. Trills sound very well, and detail is all audible, but not lingered on. At around 2 minutes and 20 seconds, we get a repeat of the exposition, the opening material. And Pellini here shows, again, mark, remarkable agility for a man his age, as well as remarkable boldness in his approach. I prefer really a more romantic view of this movement with lingering phrase and a slower tempo, but we're hearing a performance by one of the greatest pianists of the 20th century, and I'm not going to say anything about that. I am sitting down listening, wanting to uh, <laughs> hear what last thoughts he might have on this work. So I'm really enjoying this quite a lot. We need to discover what he wants to tell us about this piece through his years of experience. At about the 4 minutes and 30 second mark, the development starts. Its overlapping sequences and cantering rhythm, buildup of harmonic tension, aren't dramatized at all, but played as they appear with a view to the big structure. Yeah, he's playing this movement very quickly, and a lot of the emotional material is just blowing by us. He wants our minds or our ears on the lines, on mm -hmm. the big structure here. So we get, it's that kind of performance. And this is a question I often get. Well, if you heard one performance of this famous work how isn't that it you know do you have to hear other ones <laughs> well different pianists especially if they're really great pianists are going to take different approaches yeah. and you know tease out different details in the score or different relationships between the chords and we're getting a lot of that here and this is really a more of a meta like look at it as far as i can tell at six minutes and 18 seconds the recapitulation starts which is the repeat of the opening material with some changes to the original presentation at the beginning this is beethoven's doing and due to Pellini's approach these changes really stick out which i'm sure is the point or part of it okay the percussive material in this movement has all been flattened out by the acoustic a bit making it flow more and I'm guessing that's what Pellini wants for this interpretation. I can't imagine that uh, the engineer just decided, oh, I'm going to put the mic this far back just mm -hmm. just so that, uh, you know. I, I think Pellini probably has some kind of, uh, there were probably some discussions before this um, recording was made. I'm guessing. Anyway, as people on Facebook are fond of pointing out to me, I'm never right about these things. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I'm going by what I'm hearing, and it's always nice to know what the actual intention was. So if anybody wants to write to me about this, I'd be interested to hear your comments. All right, the second movement, Scherzo, this is a very short movement. It's also extremely fast and features remarkable playing by Pellini. The highly accented line is played for the way it connects to the rest rather than for local color, which is going to be the case with this entire piece. The middle section starts at around the 50-second mark and is very uniform in sound. And then at a minute, 28 seconds... The opening material is repeated, and then we're just through to the Adagio Sostenuto third movement, the slow movement. This one is very, very long, but it actually clocks in at a rather shorter time than most performances do. He plays this rather fast. Okay, this movement starts as a chorale, so chords, sort of church-like chords, and gives a spiritual quality, let's say, or maybe some kind of religious worship quality. Uh, the tempo Pellini is taking is pretty fast here. Uh, he connects... This is an adagio, remember. Okay, should be played slowly. He connects all the chords into an unmissable line, uh, drawing your attention to the shape of the line rather than the sound of the chords. I mean, you can still hear the sound of the chords, but you're 
Hmm. You know how painters will often like through the perspective, they'll draw your eye to a certain part of the painting. Well, that's what Polini's doing here. He wants to draw us our ears towards the um, the melodic line or the uh, harmonic and melodic shape. Polini really was never one for hard on sleeve playing, as I've mentioned, but the tender exposed line at the two minute mark comes across gently. Uh, the time marking accompaniment juxtaposed with the syncopated theme at two minutes and 31 seconds is admirably shaped. The rhythm is kept to its proper shape, not sounding like a swing rhythm as it can in the hands of some pianists. Yeah, I've heard performances of this where this this section, pianists almost can't help but get into a sort of swing feel, really? which is really mm. inappropriate mm. for Beethoven's time. But Polini actually does this perfectly. This is really the way it should sound. Um, I like the sound of the bass in the third minute, by the way. Polini avoids sounding muddy in this resonant edge-softening acoustic. So... The effect is if you've ever seen, say, a romantic movie with a soft filter over the faces so that there's a slight blur to them, we're getting that out of this recording or out of this performance. He articulates the bass exceptionally well, uh, getting a clear articulation and balancing beautifully between the hands. This can be a really hard movement to put across because it's slow and long, but Polini excels at putting the musical shape across, and he does that here. I'm noticing how he keeps the harmonic shape in motion in the quieter, leaner material in the 5th and 6th minutes. At 6 minutes 50 seconds, the now 16th note theme, starting just as the beat in the right hand balances well, with the bass marking time on the beat and clearly articulated. There's a beautifully taken retard and decrescendo up to the 8 minute and 30 second mark, and it leads us to the slow, a slow earlier theme. By the 11th minute, when we're hearing earlier material decorated with extra notes, we become aware of the sureness of Polini's view of the ending. Not just like he's seeing light at the end of the tunnel, but when he's entered the darkness of the tunnel at the beginning, he knew the light would be there all along. That's kind of the way I'm hearing this movement. He's been down this road before and has a clear image of how the entire voyage will go. In other words, we're hearing experience being musically expressed here. The fastest rhythm he employs is kept all the way through this 15-plus minute movement, and we don't hear it as a long movement. All, all of the uh, episodes are recorded, passed, and the whole thing just feels of a piece. The fourth movement starts Largo, and uh, the main section is Allegro Risoluto, so starting slowly with an introduction and going into a faster section. This starts with the opening octaves played tentatively as though testing the waters. The high ethereal chords that follow are played with no sense of extra musical meaning. Uh, they're usually played with a kind of like of a spiritual nature or this, this kind of like starlight kind mm. of sound to them, but not here. They're just structural elements in the unfolding movement. And this is actually a pretty interesting approach. Pianists really like to make a lot of those very high chords at the end of this movement. But here they're just part of the scenery and part of the harmony. <laughs> uh, the line that follows is luminous. We hear the chords again, then an explosive and surprisingly fast section that is retreated from when we go back to the ethereal chords. This all happens in the first two minutes. There are impressive thrills just after the two-minute mark, after which the famous um, fugue, or maybe fugato, begins with its complex lines with built-in trills. Again, I'm amazed at the gradation of line uh, Polini is capable of between the voices, making each voice audible in the context of the whole. Uh, should you decide to zoom in on any particular line, you can do that easily. This is even more remarkable in the contrapuntal lines in the 6th and 7th minutes, 
played at high speed. This remains the case to the beautifully judged ending with its many trills leading up to the solid final chord. Getting to the end of this makes me feel like I've heard a brilliant lecture that I haven't fully understood, but I'm going away from knowing more than I did when I came in. So I had that feeling from this. Okay, and that's the album. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but Polini was a very intellectual pianist and one, and still is really, and one through whom I learned to listen to piano music via his recordings when I was younger. I mean, he really introduced me in a way via his playing to the whole idea of musical structure, which made classical music listening easier for me. Then I started reading about it and understanding it a bit more. He was instrumental, really, in my understanding of the larger structure and the fact that there was a larger structure in composed music. That said, Polini really was a product of the post-war 20th century. He jettisoned any extra musical meaning from his music and focused on the intellectual elements of the music he played. And there are plenty of intellectual elements in Beethoven's music. He's a pianist of a particular kind. And in 2021, when these recordings were made, so really two years ago, actually one and one well, plus yeah, a few months yeah. you know, years ago, he remains that And at that point. We're hearing here a summing up of what he's discovered after a lifetime of playing these pieces. The clarity of line and shape remain remarkable. Elements no other pianist today can put together to this degree, and they really don't use this approach anymore. I guess it's just out of fashion. It makes me think what a loss it will be when Polini is gone. I would have liked a drier acoustic, as I've mentioned uh, several times, but I suspect the acoustic we get was also an intentional decision. I'd say cherish this album and what it communicates, because we won't hear a pianist of Polini's like again. Bring the insights it gives you into other performances of these works, and you'll enjoy them that much more. It's interesting you talked a lot about structure. I have a few notes, especially in the Piano Sonata 29th Third Movement. Oh. A lot of these are long, but before the 11th minute, I started to notice, I notes like I can tell the arc of the composition. Right. You know, I'm following just where the climaxes should be and the connection of things. So I think one thing I got is his real mastery of these pieces, a right. complete internal map. He knows yeah. where he is in relation to the whole movement and then the whole structure as well. Also, I was impressed by his forcefulness. Mm. Very big dynamics. Maybe that's one reason for the more distant microphone placement. Yeah, it could be. Uh, it could be. But I think that can be captured. I don't know. Anyway. Also, his endurance. As you say, these are longer pieces and a really long program, but he doesn't seem to weaken uh, through them. I mean, he's very strong right through the end. Yeah, remember, he's 80 years old, so yeah. that's amazing, really. And yeah. like I said, those uh, dynamics are surprising. Maybe the only thing I notice, and this is maybe not from his age, but just compared with the younger pianists we hear now that have a real kind of sense of flexibility in their phrasing, right. I don't get that from him. Not talking about speed, yeah. but just sort of uh, softness in the phrasing, where he is pretty much right. um, direct on and um, exactly. more forceful. I think that's more part of, of his time. style. Yeah. That's his style. Yeah. Yeah, but these are some of the more difficult Beethoven pieces to listen to and I'm sure to perform. But I found that I was engaged right through yeah. and uh, really impressed with the uh, dynamic nature of the performance and consistency right to the end. So yeah, give it a listen. All Beethoven fans should check this one out. Yeah, if you are if you struggle with Beethoven's late music, as far as the piano music goes, Polini's really your man as really a guide, either here or in the very famous 1977 recordings. 
for those who want to seek that out, they're pretty spectacular. But they're of a specific kind. Right. right. All right. So there we go. Let's move on. Our next um, recording here is um, for all you lovers out there. <laughs> Where? Where are they? <laughs> yeah. Val- well, Valentine's Day. <laughs> it's coming up. That's right. You'll see them all. So by the time we're, we have this up, mm. maybe you can program this for your... Um, yeah. We should tell our listeners who aren't in Japan how that works here too. You want to talk about... Well, let's, let's do the album first and then we'll okay, we kind of get to that at the end because I want to make this Valentine's Day point here. Okay. This is really an ideal record for... Um, a classical record for Valentine's Day if you are of that uh, mindset. Mm. It's Clara and Robert Schumann, two of the great talents and lovers of classical music history. This is an album of their piano concertos. They both wrote one and they're both on this album. And this is played by... Um, young, really up-and-coming piano, Beatrice Rana. She's Italian, and uh, she's the pianist here. We talked about her last when we heard her play the Chopin Etudes. Right. Uh, sometime last year. I didn't actually... We don't have a database. I didn't search through the episodes <laughs> to find out which one that was on. But it was... Um, I think it was last year. It might have been 2021 at the end of the year, but I don't really remember. I should have looked. Anyway. And she has grown. She at has. Least I felt. Yeah. yeah. This is the uh, Chamber Orchestra of Europe, uh, conducted by Yannick Neze Sagan. And this is on uh, Warner Classics. I hope I said his name right. Uh, I should have looked that up. Anyway, we start first with Clara Schumann, piano concerto in A minor. The same key as Robert Schumann's mm. piano concerto. Now, that's kind of important to think about because they're connected, you see. Anyway, Opus 7. And uh, this is not only Clara's only piano concerto, but also her only composition for orchestra. All the rest of the work she wrote were either songs or pianos for piano solo. It was written 10 years earlier than Robert's piano concerto. It's an A minor, as I mentioned, the same as Robert's. And it was written when Clara was 16 years old. Amazing. The young Mozart there. Mm. <laughs> Mozart girl. All right. And Clara, by the way, was one of the great... Uh, performers of the uh, 19th century. When you think of the 19th century, you think of people like Liszt mm-hmm. and uh, like that. But she was up there in that upper echelon. She was also the soloist at the premiere of her piano concerto. She played it at 16 years old. It's fairly short. She was also the soloist for Robert's piano concerto at its premiere, Wow, which is very interesting. Robert didn't play his own works because he had injured his hand trying to stretch his fingers with this mechanical device that he never a good invented. idea yeah, yeah never a good idea to mess with those things but Clara wound up playing all of his music so they were kind of joined at the mm. hip really in a lot of ways that was performed by the Gewandhaus orchestra by the way the Roberts piano concerto conducted by Felix Mendelssohn all those giants were all together back then Innovations to the form included linking the three movements as with Mendelssohn's first piano concerto now I'm talking about Clara's piano concerto now so she may have been inspired by that from hearing Mendelssohn's first piano concerto, which was written four years earlier. And a duet between piano and solo cello, which Brahms would later pick up and put in his piano concerto number two. Right. He was also connected to the Schumanns, and I think he had a big crush on Clara as well. So lots of uh lots of lots of love happening here. Intrigue, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, Clara's piano concerto um starts with Allegro Maestoso. It's got a confident orchestration and tone. 
The piano enters boldly at the 42nd mark, and Rana plays down the opening a bit, and she could have really exploded in here, but this is going to be a thoughtful performance that takes in the entire form of the piece. Talking a lot about form today. There's gorgeous lyrical playing at a minute and 45 seconds and beyond, which comes across as modest and heartfelt from the young Clara Schumann. A building storm is quickly attenuated in the third minute, and then we get a lively hopping rhythm at 3 minutes and 20 seconds and afterwards. There's a big buildup of tension up to the fifth minute, which leads to material heading towards what you'd think would be a cadence, but we get an inconclusive passage that leads into the second movement. No interruptions, Mm. as we said. Romanze. This is a heading that a lot of romantic composers liked to use. This is taken very slowly in this performance with a romantic glow on the melody. Maybe put this on repeat at your uh, Valentine's Day (laughs) dinner. There are some Chopin-esque runs connecting some of the melody. And toward the end of the third minute, a cello theme comes in, making the theme even more lyrical and romantic. The piano finishes the movement with searching chords that lead to, with no interruption, the finale, marked Allegro non troppo, and then Allegro molto, because it's going to speed up. So we hear, at first, a horn fanfare, leading to a theme that is based on the dance rhythm of the Polonaise. Rana renders the theme gracefully, with the poise associated with a formal dance rather than as anything wild. This is the longest movement in the concerto, about the same length as the first two movements together. The rhythm and thematic material is sensitively put across, with Rana always producing a light tone. It's a performance that wants every nuance in the score to register, and they do. Well, I guess they do. They might be more, but this has a lot of them. We hear a bold orchestral theme at 4 minutes and 35 seconds. When this dies away, the piano comes in with a light-toned romantic theme at about the 5 minute 30 second mark. Rana has a lovely, sensitive, yet fully resonant, quiet tone and puts this across beautifully. Another tension buildup leads to the rondo theme we heard at the beginning, which quietens and goes in another harmonic direction at 6 minutes and 33 seconds. There's a lot of this withheld tension in this piece mm. where it just sounds like the, the big... Uh, orgasmic you know chord is going to happen and then she just kind of pulls it yeah. pulls it away from you it's a real tease those romantics Rana absolutely revels in the beautiful lyrical ideas heard throughout the concerto such as the one just after the eight minute mark there's a harmonic buildup that's attenuated and I have to say neither Rana nor Nezesegan play this piece for excitement any elan in the buildup of tension is underplayed as if the two know that Clara Schumann will make a detour rather than resolve the uh, chords. Uh, we do get a big ending, and I'm, I want to say the underplaying isn't a criticism, it's a uh, an observation, and I suspect it's part of the interpretation. We do get a big ending chord, though. The piece is played more for the clarity of its themes than for the harmonic excitement that is clearly present. So I, you could almost say it's almost in the Polini uh, mold there. Hmm. It's a very good performance, though. If you want to, by the way, Clara Schumann's uh, piano concerto is starting to be uh, recorded more and more as we are hearing more music from women composers. If you want to hear an earlier recording of it, there's one on Hyperion as part of their romantic piano concerto series uh, played by Howard Shelley. And that's going to be more in the, uh, I won't say thundering, but in the more traditional romantic style. Here we're kind of getting a bit of a, you know, offering and pulling sort of uh, romantic kind of interpretation to this work and it's very appealing and very effective all right next we have one of my favorite piano concertos of all time really one of my favorite works of all time robert schumann's 
Piano Concerto in A minor, Opus 54. One of the things we find in the pairing of this with Clara's earlier concerto is that they are connected in many ways, not just the key. They were originally conceived as one-movement works and then grew from that into three-movement works. The coda to the first movement of this concerto incorporates a four-note motive from Clara's third movement. So Mm. Robert is putting Clara in his composition because he just can't be without her at any time. And the first movements in both concertos contain a slow episode in A-flat major that bridges the exposition or opening material to the development section. So there are a lot of connections between these works. The first movement of Robert's concerto is Allegro Affettuoso, and this starts with some excitement in the harmonic buildup in the orchestra right at the beginning, but Rana takes a contrasting, slowly played, lyrical approach to her opening melody, and the orchestra responds in kind. I do like Rana's sensitive phrasing, drawing out the sensitivity in the melodic ideas. She gets a good, quiet tone and uses it often, making this interpretation stand out among its many competitors as something slightly different. Orchestral detail comes out cleanly, such as the flute at 2 minutes and 30 seconds. Now, I want to say, by the way, making this piece sound new is something of a an achievement because it's been played by virtually mm. everybody and there are loads of recordings of it. Uh, so, Rana's... Um, performance here really is something special. Whenever an orchestral instrument gets a solo theme, it's made to stand out by Neze Sagan. Gorgeous detail in the orchestra is heard at 4 minutes and 41 seconds in the orchestra in it, in the winding and slowing of the thematic material, after which Rana comes in with gossamer light sound for the next theme. Extremely sensitive playing from Rana. At 6 minutes and 14 seconds, we get a sudden fortissimo played at speed. Rana can't help but make her figuration sound melodic as well with the way she shapes it. That's the uh, blessing or the curse of being Italian, depending (laughs) on how you want to think about it. I personally think it's a blessing. I would like the whole world to be melodic. These guys can play Schoenberg and make it sound (laughs) like a a pop tune. It's pretty amazing. At 8 minutes and 16 seconds, the main theme repeats in the recapitulation, and if anything, Rana is even more tender and lyrical in her theme than she was at the beginning. This all feels very personal, and this is where my idea about this whole program being like a Valentine's Day message Mm. came across. The personality, I feel like I'm peering in at some private moment, like I'm looking through the keyhole, and I'm seeing Robert and Clara (laughs) kind of getting ready for the... uh, for a, like a tryst, let's say, or something like that. It, it does sound like something we shouldn't be privy to. Hmm. And that's kind of exciting, if you think about it. It is, in fact, adult music. It's kind of... Yeah. I feel like this performance really sums up uh, our logo with its pink sign, <laughs> which, which is kind of lowbrow, and uh, the things we talk about, which can be highbrow. Okay, so we're kind of... We want to... Straddling uh, both... We want to straddle both there. of those worlds there. And that's what I feel like this performance does. Although it's not lowbrow, of course. It's not. Um, anyway, the main theme at 8 minutes, 16 seconds, the main theme repeats in the recapitulation. And uh, I already said that Rana is more tender and lyrical here. The performance is very satisfying emotionally as a musical performance. Perhaps due to the contrast in the piano, the orchestra sounds bigger and bolder in the recapitulation. For example, in the march theme at the 12 minute mark. So you can compare that to the beginning. It's followed by Gossamer playing by Rana at 12 minutes and 50 seconds. I'm using this word Gossamer a lot. It's used a lot by classical music writers. Gossamer is the spider's web. So it's this very, very fine 
sort of material. So gossamer playing means that the the thread is like it's it's a thread, but it's very very light. You almost can't see it, or it's just right at the um, the edge of hearing. Uh, I really enjoyed the change of feeling Rana got in the faster theme at 13 minutes and 20 seconds. It sounds joyous. And we're back to tenderness afterwards and an attenuated buildup to the final chord. The second movement, we get a pause here between these movements. The second movement uh, is in intermezzo. And this is an interestingly started at a quick speed in the opening piano gesture. It's usually played a little more tentatively. It attenuates a bit when the piano and orchestra play together. Uh, the orchestra gets a good sense of warmth in its wide melodic ideas. Listen to the second minute for that. After the middle section, we're back to the tiptoeing theme of the opening. It's an interesting gesture played at the quick speed here, more familiar in its intimacy, less careful. I feel like the way she plays it is more, there's, there's kind of a, a confidence to it, like, you know, we've done this before, whereas most pianists will often play it like dun, 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 you know, like they're kind of, mm. you know, trying something new in their <laughs> in their romantic <laughs> exploits here, you know, testing something out. The movement ends with the beginning of a slow fanfare that launches us into the third movement, Allegro Vivace. This is taken at a good speed comparable to other performances. Some performances make the tempo sound like it was released from a slingshot from the second movement, but that's not the case here. This one captures the transition without that dramatic gesture. I did like the way Rana's gossamer playing sounds in leading up to the warm fragment of a theme in the second minute and again in the sixth minute when we hear an extended lead up to it, again, played in quiet, glowing tone. She uses this tone a lot in this performance, and it's really beautiful. It's really touching. It's tender, let's say, the way you want to be with your lover. After this, the long approach to the final cadence begins. We can already hear the tension letting go in the eighth minute, and it's nicely captured by the interpretation on this recording. We practically float to the ending chord on a cloud of arpeggiated notes, in the last minute. Okay, well, if Clara Schumann is the bride and Robert Schumann is the groom, Franz Liszt is going to be the priest. <laughs> <laughs> Track seven, we get a, a Franz Liszt transcription for solo piano of a song by Robert Schumann called uh, Widmung. Widmung means dedication. Okay, so it's originally a song, and the song had a beautiful text by Friedrich Rückert. Fans of Mahler will know the five Rückert leader. And in the text, the man, I guess it is, tells of a love so incredible that it brings out in each of them ein besseres Ich, a better I, or a better self. In it, Robert wrote it as a dedication of his love for Clara in the year of their marriage. Before that, Robert had written to Clara, You complete me as a composer as I do you. Every thought of yours comes from my soul, just as I have to thank you for all my music. So these people are really kind of, you can't really tell where one ends and the other begins uh, as far as their love goes. In this piece, Rana sounds more free here without the orchestra, playing freely and unguardedly, expertly navigating Liszt's figuration and getting the earnest declaration of love across in her melodic shaping. The arpeggios at 2 minutes and 40 seconds or so and afterwards are beautifully even and exciting, and the boldness of the accompaniment and melody after 3 minutes are deeply heartfelt. She quietens her sound for gossamer tone at the end of the phrase, then a slight build-up to the dramatic final chord. So I almost feel like maybe a better way of thinking about this program is that Clara is Juliet, 
Robert is Romeo and uh, List is uh, the friar that uh, kind of sets them <laughs> up, sort of, and tells of their love. Because the, the friar, I forget his name, he's telling the story of Romeo and Juliet. He's basically the uh, the narrator, I mm-hmm. guess, recounting the story. So I, I kind of feel like um, List is putting his blessing on this couple in this program, as it's organized anyway. So overall, this is a tender, lyrical, attenuated performance of the works. Attenuated meaning it's holding back a bit, and it's doing this intentionally. As though Rana had the love of Robert and Clara in mind all the way through. Any drama that could be characterized by the harmony is really underplayed here, and I'm sure that's intentional. Rana and the orchestra are putting across a very specific vision of these works, and I think the final list transcribed Schumann song sums the approach up. These performances are not aiming to thrill, but to soothe and even to arouse. Oh, it's adult music at its finest, folks. It's what we're all about. Rana's playing is highly melodic, beautifully toned all the way through, and the orchestral playing matches her well. We've heard Robert's concerto played more dramatically, and there's plenty of room for other interpreters to play Clara's in a dramatic way. But these performances are of a piece and really are an ideal Valentine's Day listen. If you're going to go for that meta Valentine's Day, recommended. Yeah, I enjoyed this one a lot. Rana impressed me with her maturity and taste in these performances. I feel like she's grown since we heard her in the last recording, especially the phrasing. Mm. Not overdone, just tasteful. Very tasteful. Saving it up for the really dramatic spots and never overdoing it. I don't know that I've heard the Clara Schumann piece before. I know the mm. Robert Schumann. I found it's a wonderfully compact yeah. little piece of music where in the movements flow together without pause it's just perfectly balanced and uh, really lovely and they as you said they go together really well these two pieces you know, it's also one of those works where you know you think she was 16 years old when she wrote this Amazing. i mean that's yeah. like your what is that your junior in high school yeah man i'd be afraid of someone who did that in my high school who wrote a piece like this the robert schumann has uh, a lot more length and little diversions and i found that Every place where the things get stretched out in the composition, both Rana and the orchestra sort of emphasize the variety, yeah. but not only in sort of the material, not sort of interpretation, like I said. So it's a bit understated, but yeah. it keeps you going and listening more deeply uh, in there. And I, I also really enjoyed the orchestra on here. I thought it was in perfect balance with the piano. It sounds great. The recording's really clear and the conducting, everything seems spot on in terms of tempo and right. balance of the instruments. So just really enjoyable. And another young pianist, now I'm really eager to hear her do some more works. I can't remember what She's was done, on the program that we heard her in last time. It was the Chopin Etudes, okay. mostly. And there was uh, there was some other works on there, too. There are other recordings that she made. She did the Bach-Goldberg Variations. Mm. She did the uh, one of our favorite works, the Prokofiev uh, Second Piano Concerto. Right. And the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto is on that. And she also has a recording of Ravel and Stravinsky. So she's playing those um, you know, Petrushka pieces and Ravel Miroir. And they're beautiful, beautiful performances. That might be my favorite album of hers. But I like this one a lot too now, so I gotta really think about it, you know? She's fantastic. I like her a lot. Yeah, I wanna hear her on some more kind of romantic material. Really? Anything her interpretation, she wants, yeah. Anything she wants to play. I really do like this pianist a lot. Beatrice Rana. Yeah, look out for her. Yeah. And pick up her, give, give her recordings a listen. This one and some of the older ones as well. Anyway, my last um, classical pick 
is another giant of the uh, piano playing world. Also the same age as Polini, maybe a year older, Martha Argerich. And she's playing with uh, Renaud Capuçon, who's like, uh, I guess, a generation, maybe a few, ge- two generations younger than her. Mm. I'm not really sure. They're in a duo here with uh, playing Beethoven, Schumann, and Franck violin sonatas. And this is on the Deutsche Grammophon label. Oh, I should mention, I didn't mention that uh, the Beatrice Arana is on the Warner Classics label. I don't think I got that far. <laughs> anyway, this uh, this recording, Renaud Capuçon, violin, Martha Argerich, piano, on the Deutsche Grammophon label. And uh, the background to this recording is uh, that uh, Capuçon first worked with Marker Argerich when he was 16 years old. Oh, wow. yeah, there's a connection between him and Clara Schumann now. When he played, this is interesting, in the last stand of second violins in the European Community Youth Orchestra. So in other words, he was barely in it. You think, right. <laughs> you know, with um, Mstislav Rostropovich conducting. Wow. wow. And uh, Martha Argerich is soloist in Prokofiev's third piano concerto, a work I'm going to have to go home and listen to again now. 30 years later, Capuçon has come a long way, being a big violin soloist in his own right. And he's recorded key chamber works with her at the piano as here. He says that she makes him play like no one else does. I believe it after hearing this recording. Yeah. Um, and Because I'm rather a fan of Capuçon's as well, and I've heard his other recordings. And he does sound, he always sounds great, but he sounds um, rather... Like he's really. Like, I've rarely heard two musicians so tuned into each other. Yeah, exactly. Just, mm. It seems like they have a full trust and knowledge of how the other is going to move, and so they almost become one yeah. in in the flow. This was a really impressive program. You get the impression that they have that feeling, like when you're going to fall backwards, the other one is absolutely going to catch yeah. them you know so you just kind of let go you know yeah this was the interplay and just the complete you know sort of trust comes through in everything in this program so i was really impressed by this yeah so anyway this is a live recording made in april 2022 at the easter festival at, at x en provence oh i didn't Wait, know that x en provence wow. yeah well you know you don't really realize it's a live recording until the very end yeah because it's dead silent it's amazing yeah um, and the, there's no applause at the end of the first two works. That apparently, the engineer took it out. The concert was dedicated to the pianist, Nicholas Angelich, who had died a few days before. We lost two great pianists last year. And Angelich was one, and Lars Vogt was mm. the other. And there's actually a new Lars Vogt album coming out. Not with the trio that he usually plays with. And I think it's the last recording he ever made. And we will be discussing that on the Adult Music Podcast in the coming weeks, I'd say. Okay. Okay, we're in a month, maybe a month or two. We'll see. Anyway, we start out with uh, Robert Schumann. Again, we got this, uh, we're all connected here. Yeah. All romantic today, I guess. Romantic era. Uh, Robert Schumann, Sonata for Violin and Piano, number one in A minor. He really liked that key, didn't he? We're stuck in A minor today. Yeah, we got a lot of A minor. Opus 105. The first movement, Mit Leidenschaftlichem Ausdruck. But by the time I figured out what that means, I mean, it's, the piece will be over. Anyway, it means with passionate expression. And uh, the two here, Capuçon and Argerich, are in sync with each other from the beginning, each striking the mysterious mood of the opening of this work perfectly and both slightly muted. It's really beautiful playing. When the sound blooms at about the 52nd mark, we get a clear rhythm on the piano, also iterated by the violin, and we're in for some great playing. It's obvious from the beginning of this um, 
movement. The sound here is very clear, much more satisfying than on the Polini recording, and yet it's a live recording. Yeah. Argerich is a rather cheeky player. Sometime at around the 2 minute and 20 second mark, you can hear her suddenly pull back on the sound, a sudden decrescendo, that sounds spontaneous. It's so sudden. And you need an attentive partner to be able to do that in a chamber work. Mm. And she has that and in Capuçon. Now, this is what I was talking about, about the falling backward and knowing the other person's going to catch you. They sound so good together. Both get some gorgeous rubato in the fifth minute. I'd say that in this movement, Argerich is the leader. And Capuçon is uh, listening to her and adapting to what she spontaneously does. It's pretty exciting when the two classical musicians are so in tune that this is possible. Anyway, it's a deeply felt performance of the movement. The second movement, Allegretto, has a beautiful quiet line with attenuated tone on the violin. And he has the lead melody here. The piano gently adds harmony at times. So they've really switched roles now. Now the violin is leading and the piano is sort of listening to what the violin's doing. I like the slightly slowing tempo in the first minute as we get new material. Argerich is uh, an exceptionally sensitive accompanist in this movement. It sounds as though the roles have switched and she's responding to what Capuçon does. And he is spontaneous at times in subtle ways. He takes a romantic approach, which is appropriate, uh, with slight slowing at the end of lines. At the 2 minute 50 second mark, we hear the opening theme again and head to the final cadence, which is uh, taken quietly. The third movement, Lebhaft, meaning lively, uh, starts out racing with the piano playing at a light sprint and the violin bowing rapidly as it plays its theme. Once again, the piano introduces the lines and the violin responds, so Augerich is leading here with um, Capuçon responding. The movement pretty much goes from a sprint to a more lyrical theme and back to a sprint. They shape their lines appealingly at high speed. Again, this is a deeply satisfying performance. I like the sudden slowing at the four-minute mark, again with Capuçon immediately reacting to the new speed. It's an exciting, satisfying performance and really a model of what this work should sound like. Okay, next we get the mighty Beethoven Sonata for Violin and Piano number 9 in A major. All right, so we're out of um, Hmm. the minor now. Uh, The Kreutzer Sonata, Opus 47. All right. Well, we're not getting any breaks with the Beethoven here because we have all these giant works by him. We heard the Hammerklavier earlier. And um, this is uh, the mightiest of his violin sonatas. I think it was written in 1804 in his um, middle period, the uh, heroic period, not in the later very spiritual period that the Hammerklavier mm. was written in. Anyway, this one starts out um, Adagio Sostenuto moving to Presto. So it's got an introduction followed by a main section. And so here Beethoven is sort of shaping this, although it's much bigger, as Mozart would maybe, uh, a symphonic movement or something like that. It has um, one of those um, slow introductions followed by a fast main section, starting with the violin playing solo, aligned with many double-stopped chords that Capuçon shows enormous presence playing this really is kind of gripping it's almost like we're about to hear the uh the Bach uh, solo violin you know sonatas and partitas he's he's really grabbing the spotlight here the piano then comes in booming on a chord and gets a solo intro bit to itself and the two gradually start coming together Argerich goes for dramatic changes of dynamic as Beethoven's work indicates At a minute and 25 seconds, the main section begins, and it's taken at a slightly slower pace than usual. Once we get to the minute 58 second mark, however, 
It really takes off, and the two expertly trade rapid lines. Argerich is very dramatic in this work, as is Capuçon, but his tone is on the sweet side and lends itself to more lyrical playing. We get to hear some of the lyrical playing at 2 minutes and 25 seconds when the thematic material changes. It's amazing that with the power Argerich is playing with, and at about 80 years old also, I might add, and mm. in a live performance. So yeah. this isn't being recorded movement by movement. This is uh, an actual live performance. That Capuçon can even be heard, <laughs> but he can. This is a live performance, remember, though he may be close mic'd. What is the audience hearing here? Are they hearing him over this? I, It's amazing to me. Anyway, it sounds great on the recording. At 4 minutes and 14 seconds... A repeat of the exposition of the main section begins at the same deliberate speed. Tension again builds up afterwards, and we're off to the races again, with subtle changes in inflection, but more or less following the same meta-template. At around 7 minutes and 10 seconds, the development section begins. <laughs> at at a 7 minutes and 10 seconds, <laughs> let me say that again, the development section begins. That's a long exposition. Now, we got a repeat of it, but... Um, but not with the intro. Mm. But still, that's very long. Uh, my ear in the development section is drawn to Argerich. She's powerful and gets mercurial changes of mood effortlessly. This is really amazing. And it really draws something out of Beethoven's score. Just the, the changing moods, the rapidly changing moods. She grabs every one. Capuçon responds well to everything she does. Just after the nine-minute mark, the opening main theme is heard. Played very slowly and rather cheekily indicating openly to us that this isn't the recapitulation yet. It starts at normal speed about 30 seconds later, meaning the recapitulation. The second theme is gentler in its new key here, played with great sensitivity. There's a coda starting at around 12 minutes and 10 seconds that builds tension that starts to be released at 12 minutes and 47 seconds with the decrescendo and rallentando. The duo are almost frozen in the next section until they explode in an absolute sprint for the resolving tonic chord. A very exciting interpretation. We move to the second movement, which is an andante con variazioni. There are four variations. They're all very long. We hear the theme, the first half stated by the piano, the second half accompanied by the violin. So the piano plays the whole theme. The piano gets a lot of the exposition material with the violin decorating. The theme is pretty long. There are only four variations of the movement, but the movement itself is 16 minutes long. A lot to remember for those of us who are trying to follow the various variations. The theme finally ends at the 2 minute and 30 second mark, and we get a lively, sprightly version of it from the piano, with the violin adding rhythmic counterparts. Argerich's articulation of the rhythm really propels the material and keeps the listener involved. At 4 minutes and 34 seconds, we get the second variation. The violin takes the lead in this one, playing continuous 16th note lines, with the piano playing in a bass note followed by a chord pattern. So bass note, chord, bass note, chord. Remarkable qualities are drawn from the rather quiet playing. At 6 minutes and 24 seconds, a minor key theme is played. This is the third variation. And it's played rather lugubriously, with especially dark tones coming from the piano. Argerich expertly captures the mood as the violin accompanies with decoration in his mid-range, occasionally playing along or completing the piano's lines. The violin and piano play the melodic theme together by the end of the variation. Uh, the fourth and final variation comes at 9 minutes and 34 seconds. It's light and music box-like in the piano with many trills. 
The violin accompanies with pizzicato. At 10 minutes and 5 seconds, the violin takes over the theme and the trills. Some enchanting sounds are heard in this variation. Uh, check the end of the 11th minute for some enchanting sound quality. At 12 minutes and 55 seconds, we're back to the opening tempo, but when the violin comes in, the tempo slows into something lonely sounding. Beethoven then uses one of his tempo tricks by giving the piano triplets so that the piece starts moving again. It ends slowly and calmly, but with rhythmic movement. The third movement is presto, finale. It starts with thundering piano chords, completely erasing the mood of the previous movement with all of its variations. And we get a racing dotted rhythm, which again, Argerich articulates so that the rhythmic feel is unmissable. Capuçon picks this up and beautifully phrases the thematic material. Uh, the material is passed back and forth between the piano and violin, kind of like a hot potato. It's mm. moving at a very fast speed. The rhythmic propulsion continues throughout the movement with all sorts of phrasing subtlety from both players and timbral shading by Argerich. The work then goes into varying sections, coming back to the opening material, slightly varied as in a rondo. This doesn't sound like a straightforward rondo, though. Perhaps a sonata-rondo hybrid. We seem to be hearing a setup to a final cadence at around 6 minutes and 50 seconds, but it's interrupted and we hear a coda at high speed with the dotted rhythm heard once in the low bass, brought out strongly by Argerich here. There's a teasing slow section at 7 minutes and 40 seconds, then the approach to the uh, final cadence is accomplished with a roar. Finally, we get a f an old favorite of mine, the Franck, uh, César mm. Franck, Sonata for Violin and Piano in A major. So we're really, <laughs> it's, it's been all A for us yes. um, today, um, except in the first, uh, I don't remember what the first, uh, yeah, we had A major and uh, B flat major in the Polini. So we heard, we heard a lot of A. There's only one piece that wasn't some, very, some form of mm. A. So, Franck, A major. All right, this starts Allegretto ben moderato. It starts slowly and ponderously in the piano. The violin comes in matching the piano's mood, sounding rather downcast in tone and phrasing. Beautiful tone from Capuçon, who really gets to show off his usual long sustained melody at this tempo. He shows off his tone, that is. When the piano line comes in just before the second minute, it condenses the tempo a bit, slows it again, then speeds it up as the figuration gets busier. By 2 minutes and 38 seconds, we're at a more moderate tempo, and this lasts into the repeat of the opening at 3 minutes and 38 seconds, where the mood is completely different from the beginning. We get a romantic slowing at the end. Uh, the quickening and slowing add expression to the movement. By the way, I've been talking for a long time, I just want to mention this album is 83 minutes long. I have a yeah, CD. It's a long one. It's very long. I have a CD of this, and my CD player was having trouble <laughs> finding the uh, the the markings for the uh, the tracks and stuff. Mm -hmm. You That'll know, happen on those long ones. Yeah. yeah so I, I knew this was going to be a, a very long listen. I actually split it up. I couldn't hear this all in one night. It was too much. Anyway, second movement, Allegro. Very passionate movement. There's almost no separation between this and the first movement. Argerich just launches into her virtuosic figuration, articulating the busy lines cleanly. Capuçon matches her quick tempo, maintaining a nice tone. There's a strong contrast between the opening and the quiet theme that starts at the two-minute mark, with the duo doing a fairly quick decrescendo and lighter attack, completely contrasting the stormy mood of the opening. It's a well-achieved effect. Capuçon's playing in the third minute is especially touching. Then at 3 minutes and 34 seconds, we're right back to heightened, 
more hysterical emotion, Capuzon miraculously maintaining his sweet tone throughout all of this figuration. The ringing, he rings the proper emotion from it, though. A movement played to the hilt for its extreme contrasts, beautifully realized ending with a quick approach to the final note. For the third movement, Recitativo Fantasia, again, Argerich doesn't hesitate between the movements. This is really a little unusual. I personally found it a bit irritating, but it's the way they're interpreting this. It's certainly acceptable, let's just say. I'm starting to conclude that this interpretation is about the sudden contrast because there's no space left to contemplate Mm. between the sudden change of mood between the movements. The second movement is, in a way, acting as a model for the entire interpretation, contrasting moods. We heard this in the Beethoven work as well. Here, there's a sudden lightning and slowing as the violin plays sensitively and the piano plays sympathetically in accompanying the violin, but challenges it with dramatic fortes when it plays solo. The lovely heartfelt passage that begins at four minutes is taken slowly and smoothly by the violin, getting a certain emotion across. But this passage is one of the things that make Chung and Lupu so special in their, to me, best ever performance or recording of this work. Uh, Kyungwa Chung and Radu Lupu. Look that up if, you've, if you want to get more familiar with this work. It's a great performance. There's a build-up to stormy emotion at 4 minutes and 50 seconds. That isn't quite realized in the score. It's like a memory of the pain of the second movement. At 5 minutes and 12 seconds, the second time we've heard the heartfelt passage, Kapusan lightens his tone even more. Repeated passages are never played the same in this performance, and this is really Kapusan's movement to shine in, with Argerich mostly in the accompanying role. At 6 minutes and 12 seconds, we get one more build-up to strong emotion, which quickly diminishes and ends with further sensitive lines from the violin. The fourth movement, Allegretto Pocomosso, has a pause. So that's a little surprise, too. Um, there's, between this movement and the previous one, the sunny mood this movement sets is able to gain stability right away as a result. Uh, this movement is a canon. Think of Row, Row, Row Your Boat being sung by four people to know what that is. And both musicians trade the spotlight throughout. Argerich has it first in the first minute as she plays the melody, and I like her sensitive shaping of the line. When Capuzon comes in for his solo spot, at about a minute and 40 seconds, you almost don't realize it's happening because his tone is obscured by the piano here. This is a little surprising because they were playing very loudly in mm. the second movement. And yet here, Argerich is playing at um, a pretty moderate volume. But uh, Capuzon's sound sort of disappears underneath her. It's a momentary maybe miscommunication. I don't really know. Because in the second minute, Capuzon is easily heard with both players play fortissimo. Again, at 3 minutes and 20 seconds, for one of the loudest passages in the movement, Argerich's sound builds up too much and obscures the violin. When the passage repeats, at about 3 minutes and 55 seconds, Capuzon is more audible, perhaps playing with more force, or perhaps he was just off mic. I can't really tell what's happening here, but this is really the only time in this entire program mm. that we're kind of hearing like a misjudgment of balance. And it's, all, it's very momentary, too. You could just miss it if you're... Mind is drifting off elsewhere. Argerich creates quite a storm in this passage. There's a fiery approach to the ending, after which we hear applause for the first time of the album, reminding us that this was a live performance. You otherwise wouldn't have known. The audience is so attentive and quiet throughout the album, and applause has been removed from the first two works. And the applause is very quickly faded at the <laughs> end. It almost, it almost 
I don't see why it even had to be there. Mm. They get rid of it so quickly. So, in the end, we get a piano legend and a younger star violinist in duo here. The performances are all first rate and interpretations are unique to this duo, as has been the case in all three classical albums that we heard today. Margaret is Polini's age and she's got all the fire we heard from her in her most famous recordings when she was much younger. She's also a sensitive accompanist when she needs to support the violin line. The two stick together like one being throughout the album, making for some miraculous duo playing. And Argerich's present is so huge that the ear is constantly riveted to what she's doing. This isn't the type of album where you'd say the performances are definitive. They're interpreted to make you think differently about these works, which are constantly heard in the concert hall. It's a unique experience hearing two great players play as one as they tease out new relationships between voices and sections of these works. So it's I would say this album is powerful. Yeah, great synergy and phrasing. As I said, it's like they have a real mind meld yeah. um, together. I enjoyed the performances, especially I like the frunk. I've heard that done kind of in a more syrupy yeah, kind of indulgent. Be. And here they just keep it going along. It's a little bit brisk, but they hit all of the right moments to pull out things. Uh, just not really kind of squeezing them out too much like you hear sometimes. So I guess Polini sets the tone at the beginning with his yeah. Beethoven performances. And as I said, he just... Amazing that they seem to trust each other all the more. Hard to believe that it's a live performance and you don't realize it until the very end. Just great playing together, nice interpretations, and not really a miss anywhere in the program other than maybe a couple sound balance things, as you pointed out. Yeah, it's really just in the last yeah. movement, too, of the franc. But uh, whenever, it doesn't really matter the style of music uh, in jazz, classical, folk music even. When you get those rare moments when players are really in tune to each other and everything locks in and you have that kind of synergy, mm. it really brings the performance to a new level. And I yeah. felt that through most of this recording, uh, just right. that uh, even though they're different generations, they've played enough together or they understand each other's playing uh, to achieve that kind of result, which was really impressive to me. And I found it really enjoyable. Yeah, so there you have it. Uh, three unique albums with unique interpretations on them of familiar works. One question. Of course, this was live. Now, if we went chronologically uh, through this program, the Beethoven would have come first. As far as year of composition yeah. goes, yeah. Then Schumann, then Frank. Right. Why do you think they put the Beethoven in the middle there? Oh, it's a very long piece. Maybe they were warming up to it. Hmm. You know, the Schumann's probably lighter. Yeah, could um, be. I mean, if you'd started with the Beethoven, it's too heavy. I mean, that would just Maybe exhaust the audience right away, and then mm -hmm. the rest of the program wouldn't. Uh, right. I suspect that the Beethoven came after the Schumann, and then there was an intermission. Right. Yeah, because that's, that's, a, that's a long work. <laughs> that's long, know? yeah. Yeah, and there's probably another work. They couldn't. They probably did something else as well after the Franck. So. Mm. All right, oh, before we move on to jazz, we did promise the Valentine's Day uh, explanation as we're getting close. And yeah. uh, what I wanted to say was in Japan, where we are, Valentine's Day operates a little bit differently. It certainly does. <laughs> Actually, it's, the it's exact opposite. It's, it's rather unromantic here. Of uh, what we did in the U.S. where we grew up, uh, where yeah. us it's, men would be under some sort of obligation to buy something for our sweetheart, flowers, yeah. chocolates, or something like that. But in Japan, 
No, <laughs> men don't do anything. We don't uh, do anything. The ladies buy chocolate or something for us. But they don't do it because they love us either. Well, they do it yeah. because they're sort of required to yeah. by uh, cult- culture, the, un- unwritten cultural rules. The uh, Japanese word giri, giri yeah. choco. So giri choco. You're buying chocolate out of obligation for some, uh, not necessarily romantic people, but co-workers right. or something Your like boss, that. Your boss, you know, yeah. things like that. However, there is a return day. Yeah. This must all be a marketing scam. It really know, is. Yeah. There's a white day. It's a racket, basically. Where uh, men are supposed to return that favor to the ladies who gave them something. Yeah, so. that's on March 14th, right. exactly a month after Valentine's Day. So It's definitely a, 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 a chocolate racketeering. Yeah, racketeering. <laughs> that's all it is. <laughs> it's a chocolate racket. That's what it is. <laughs> Anyway, that's what happens here on Valentine's Day. Right. So, I'm, I sh- I shouldn't be getting the loads of chocolate that I get at my age. It's just not good for me. <laughs> <laughs> See if you get anything this year. Yeah. All right, we're going to continue the piano theme into jazz this evening, and we've also got kind of an interesting, somewhat of a parallel, mm. uh, in that we're going to have a veteran player who's uh, doing something similar to what he did a long time ago. And I'm speaking of Kenny Barron. Hmm. This was really something. Yeah, pianist. And his new recording, uh, The Source, this came out January 20th on Artwork Records. Now, we heard Kenny Barron a bit on the podcast before, going back to episode nine. That was called A Fistful of Music, Biber, Barron, Morricone, and more. And that was with uh, Greg Abate, the saxophonist on Magic Dance, playing the music of Kenny Barron. And that had one tune, Sun Shower, that Mm -hmm. we're going to hear on this album as well. Then we heard him again in episode 37, Known Unknowns. And that was with Jerry Gibbs' Songs from My Father. Hmm. And we heard him once more, episode 62, Karmic Clarinets. And that was with Harry Scholar, Living in Sound, the Music of Charles Mingus. So he's no stranger to uh, our ear. Yeah, we actually heard him also. I don't know what episode it was on uh, Joe Farnsworth's album, City of Sounds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I forgot to look that one up. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we've heard a lot of Which was my favorite one. That's why I remember it. (laughs) And Kenny Barron, born 1943 in Philadelphia. One of his first gigs was as a pianist with the Dizzy Gillespie Quartet. Imagine that. And as his own recording discography goes he's got a lot of uh, recordings as a leader uh, but also he's an incredible accompanist and between 1987 and 91 he recorded several albums with Stan Getz Voyage Bosses and Ballads The Last Session Serenity and also there's a great People Time recording you can get all six CDs and I uh, borrowed them from a friend of the podcast, our friend Peter. Oh. Thank you, Peter. That's a wonderful introduction into everything Kenny Barron can do as an accompanist. It's just a duo. Stan Getz and Kenny Barron is the band. Wow. And he covers all those parts. Really great. As a matter of fact, I think I'll throw that on when we get the uh, ribs going oh. later. All and right. Check I'm looking that forward out. to that. Um, Stan Getz on is going to be appealing. Yeah, And, and Kenny Barron, too. He's yeah, Kenny Barron. really fantastic. And as we say, he's classy. He That's is the classy. word that always comes to my mind. For over 25 years, he's also taught piano and keyboard at Rutgers University. And now he teaches at Juilliard School of Music. So he's 79 years old. And this is his first solo album since 1981, when he recorded Kenny Barron at the piano, as on Xanadu label. And like that, 
initial solo recording. This one has the same mixture of contents. Some of his originals, we've got Monk Tunes and Duke Ellington, Billy Strayhorn, and one kind of American songbook standard. So 40 years difference and man nearing the age of 80. And well, so that's a big theme for t- tonight's yeah, episode, isn't it? Really 80 is. year old musicians, boy. Let's get into the program here. We're going to start out with, I was surprised at how this started out. Uh, one of Barron's originals, What If. Yeah. Now, if you don't know his music and you listen to this, it's going to be a surprise <laughs> first impression. Um, it's not normally uh, what we're going to hear from him, but well, it's kind he, of an He is a man beginning. of a thousand kind of uh, interpretative so. uh, qualities, though. Yeah. Anyway, this one starts out with the running right-hand figures and bass note stabs. Uh, they lead to repeated descending two-hand figures. There's more runs, some rhythmic left and right-hand chord exchanges, more runs that hands sporadically syncing up, and things finally settle down after about a minute and 20 seconds into the low register, and then some high trickles. And then Baron gets kind of a two-measure ostinato walking bass figure going in his left hand, adds some bouncy monkish melody lines in the right. The two-hand syncopated chords uh, break that up for a section before the bass figure returns for improvisations on top. It's really swinging, but he has a lot of interesting cross-rhythmic patterns and then Zippy runs up and down the keyboard. He breaks the ostinato for stabbing chords to go under his lines. He really builds on little ideas here. He extends them into longer kind of lines. At about 5 minutes and 45 seconds, he gets into a bouncy rhythmic exchange between his hands for a bit, and he works back to the ostinato bass, continuing on with improvisations. 7 minutes and 10 seconds, he syncs up his hand uh, rhythmically for a few bars. Then he brings back that kind of monkish melody, two-hand chord section, and more melody to finish it up. It's really fun. Not an interest or a easy listening intro to this, but uh, those hands seem to still do whatever he wants them to do. Yeah, so, I just, impressive. Yeah, I just want to say to uh, listeners who are coming to Candy Barron for the first time, if you decide to sample this and you turn on track one... Don't turn it off when you hit the <laughs> opening. It's kind of spiky and almost Schoenbergian the way he yeah. starts this out. Or um, who, is, who is the uh, jazz pianist? Cecil Taylor. Oh, right, it's, right. it's got a bit of that kind of yeah. quality to it. But just keep it going because it'll smooth out. Yeah. All right. So, But an exciting piece with a lot going on to start it out. Track yeah. two is Isfahan. This is Duke Ellington, Billy Strayhorn tune. Uh, Rubato start, uh, right hand notes hinting at the melody. Uh, lush chords and bass counterlines all come flashing by. Takes on a rhythmic push right before a minute, and things are still flowing easily as he gets to the main melody. It's fun to follow his bouncy right hand around there. There's a classy solo here with floating right hand melody ideas, a great sense of touch, variety of accompaniment with left hand from stabbing chords and single notes to softer figures. At about three minutes and 45 seconds, he gets a nice walking bass line coming and going, and he takes us through the melody again in similar fashion. Everything flows so easily. A very cool ending of clipped chords to a sudden low chord with some nice high trickles to finish it up. Yeah. Very classy. Hmm. Track three, Tio. This is a Monk tune, and this is from Monk's 1964 album, Monk. Uh, the track Tio being a tribute to the producer Tio Macero. Now, if you know the original, after a short piano intro line, the melody is played on tenor sax by Charlie Rouse. But here, Baron comes right in on the melody, and it's a rhythmic delight of syncopated hand integration. Listen to his left-hand bass figures and chords and the space between things, all making a great swing feel. Baron's right-hand melody lines flow smooth and bluesy over the minor chords, gets choppy and percussive for contrast, 
really building excitement. There's great interplay with some figures after about 3 minutes and 50 seconds, and some synced rising figures at 4 minutes and 50 seconds into some more chiming bluesy ideas. There's another run through the melody with a fun high trill before a low splash to end the tune. Another Ellington Strayhorn tune number four, Daydream. Rising floating lines make a dreamy intro here. Smooth and rubato melody treatment. And I like how he releases phrases in a clipped way and then contrasts with more sustained playing. Uh, It gets more dreamy and legato, but still has a snap in the way he fits the chords under the melody. At about 4 minutes and 20 seconds, he opens it up for some soloing with spaced out and soft left-hand alternating chords. There's a lot of variety in this solo, with butterfly flowing lines, more percussive bluesy ideas, little lilting figures, all with attention to dynamics. Another run through the melody with a subdued ending. At 9 minutes and 42 seconds, it's the longest track on the recording, but still the daydream seems like it's over too soon, because it's really nice. (laughs) This was a nice track, yeah. Yeah. Track 5, I'm confessing, parentheses, that I love you. Uh, This song was first produced with different lyrics as looking for another sweetie, as credited to Chris (laughs) Smith and Sterling Grant. Uh, It was recorded by Fats Waller and his babies in 1929, but in 1930 it was reborn as Confessin' with the new lyrics by Al Naberg. And the music to this uh, was then credited to Doc Doherty and Ellis Reynolds. So here we get a playful intro with two little notes and more snippets interruns around the melody in a fun rubato fashion. He kicks it into a steady bouncing tempo at about one minute with an alternating note bass line. It's a happy sounding tune and Baron has some really zippy right hand solo lines here. Listen for the playful repetition of figures after about three and a half minutes and two hand upwards zipping lines at four minutes. After a final run through the melody, he ends it with a succession of separated chords and a harmonically interesting high line. I do like uh, the the parenthetical title. I have to say, yeah. <laughs> a good, I'm confessing parentheses that I love you. Yeah, you can you can have a lot of fun with those. Yeah. There's there's a I think one of my favorite ones is uh, the White Stripes. They have a song called "You're Pretty Good Looking," parentheses for a girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, get that little surprise in the parentheses yeah. <laughs> there. All right, uh, check six. A uh, Baron original, Dolores Street. SF, I guess San Francisco. Lush rising lines and alternating chiming figures lead to the softly flowing melody that Baron decorates with high right hand upward trickles. It's been rubato and I didn't notice the meter, but at around two minutes, it takes on a soft 6-8 flow. Uh, At about four minutes, Baron adds some more pushing improvisations. They get more push and have snappy little turns. He breaks the spell occasionally with separated chords. It reaches a climax at about six and a half minutes with some interesting two-hand figures, and then it works back into the melody. Very lush and pretty. A tune most jazz fans will know, Thelonious Monk's Well You Needn't, track seven, and whoa! Short, stabby left-hand bass notes and chords, and off to the races! with the right hand for a fun start to this Monk classic. Uh, I like those low open intervals in his voicing. There's no stopping his right hand until about two minutes when he gets more of a rhythmic interchange going and then plays more ideas around the melody before taking off again. Some nice dissonant right hand chords around 250 are fun. More new rhythmic ideas after about three minutes and 30 seconds, and you can hear him humming along a bit. Uh, From about four minutes and 20 seconds, he starts off new improvised sections, quoting more from the melody, and then playing more of it for a final sprint to the end. And listen 
for his mmm at the end of the tune. Yeah, if if he weren't humming during the tune, I wouldn't have been able to pull the melody out. It's really <laughs> yeah. it's really hard to identify yeah. in this interpretation. Yeah, yeah. You know it, so he didn't yeah. need to do it expressly, but you could tell it was in his mind. Yeah. And we've got another one of his original tunes, Sun Shower, the one we heard on the other recording. Uh, repeated rhythmic minor left-hand figures get you in a trance for this pretty one. It's got an easy bossa feel with a contrasting major section, and the softly chiming right-hand melody figures are really fine against the left-hand rhythm. As he solos, I like how he alternates between connected left ringing sections and more choppy rhythms. He gets kind of bluesy around four minutes, and then things get more Cuban than Brazil sounding in the rhythmic approach and the left-hand figures. He ties it back to the melody once more with a more flowing approach to a soft ending. It's a really great journey and transformation rhythmically over the song. We're going to end up with another Baron original, Phantoms. Uh, longing minor phrases that flow like breathing lead in. A two-hand line leads into the main melody after about 30 seconds. It has a kind of sad Cuban song feel to it uh, with the rhythm in the left hand. A great sense of touch in the delicateness of the phrasing here. Speedy and soft right-hand lines. Gets more rhythmic and a hint of Cuban around three minutes with some figures and then more speedy right-hand lines. He makes it bluesy from around four minutes, then softer and more connected in the right hand after around five minutes, connecting it back to the melody. Nicely clipped chords lead up to the soft ending. And that's it. A real piano master, Kenny Barron, always exuding control class and lots of creative ideas. He's a master of all styles here. Swing, bebop, ballads, Latin. Great mix of classic and original material. I really recommend turning off the lights and closing your eyes to focus when you listen to this because you're listening to one man's mastery of an instrument. Nice recording quality on the sound too. There's really <laughs> nothing you can say other than this is fabulous jazz piano playing uh, from one of the best and most experienced players out there. Yeah, I thought the the sound actually it was a bit on the dry side, but I think in jazz that's kind of a helpful thing. Mm. So it was kind of good to hear. You get the feeling you're almost sitting right with him at the piano. It's right in a well up. in a well furnished room yeah. sort of, you know, that's absorbing the sound. But anyway, he's like I said earlier, he's a man of a mu- thousand musical faces. He's, you know, I've heard him play his own compositions on this show, on this uh, podcast with an ensemble on several of his albums. And I loved his sparkle on Joe Farnsworth's album, City of Sounds. I was, I had to mention that because I just love that record and his playing on it, especially. Um, Here, he's alone and he holds the stage and shows a deep musical knowledge as well as intuition Mm. on this album. He's a very intellectual pianist. That's on display here. So I guess he connects to Polini in that way too. Right. You know, not just as an 80-year-old, you know, although they do different musical styles. It goes into uh, various forms of jazz. There's a lot of even old stride piano right. on this. Yeah. And we don't get to hear too much of that anymore. Right. And that was a real joy for me. It draws out deep harmonic connections we normally don't hear in the more familiar pieces. There's a lot of uh, captivating uh, harmonic coloring occurring in very straightforward melodic lines. I like that too. It's this is really a master pianist after a, a long life of you know doing these sort of harmonic, uh, in, in you know what would I say investigations or like just yeah. just pulling it all together. It's really amazing. It's a little overwhelming, in fact, mm. if you're really listening closely. Again, 
I'm using my uh, captivating lecture from a charismatic professor uh, metaphor again. So this connects to the Polini recording right. as well in that way. Uh, it's going to change us once we ponder it. And this is a record that's going to re- repay uh, repeated listens a lot. There's a lot on it and there's way too much to absorb on yeah. a single listening. Um, the dry sound, um, partly his Baron's doing because he uses little to no sustain pedal. You know, he's really just kind of mm. playing. Uh, makes the detail jump out. And I guess that's what what's important here, given the approach. I enjoyed the swinging elements of these compositions and was pretty riveted by the overall approach. And I liked especially the swinging old school feel of Teo, Teo and the gorgeous chords in Daydream. You pulled that right. one out as well. As well as the surprising rhythmic and textural changes in Tio. Daydream was the standout track for me on this album, and I really loved it. This will go in the collection. Right. The the growing collection. I'm always uh, in the mood to hear Kenny Barrett <laughs> yeah. any day. So, yeah, check that out. It's a great solo piano recording. You know, like in ancient Rome, the uh, the, the ancient Roman like ruins are kind of like a few feet um, lower than the normal city because all mm-hmm. the sediment has piled up over the years. That's already happening to my house because of the weight of the CDs <laughs> that are in it. So yeah. they're going to find me, you know, I'm going to be on the Roman level. Well, I don't know what level that would be in Japan, but we'll see. Yeah, Yoi period, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. All right, keep your seatbelts on for more swing. Here's a younger pianist uh, who I was really happy to discover and I'm really excited about his playing and that's Christopher Lucas Wilson and his trio with the new release also out on January 20th Solemn Moments and this is on Casa de Jazz Records now Wilson is originally from metropolitan Detroit he later went to Los Angeles and then recently relocated to Chicago the sound of swing is what first attracted him to jazz and he studied with late greats Bess Bonnier and Marcus Belgrave. And later he would join the Detroit Symphony Orchestra's Civic Jazz Program, where he first met esteemed bassist and educator Rodney Whitaker, who we've heard on this podcast before. By the time he graduated from high school, he was into swing and bebop and would go on to further his studies within the jazz program at Michigan State University. He spent a decade out in Los Angeles, where he played regularly with his trio and released two albums, Feeling Better and Leaving Los Angeles. Then he moved to Chicago shortly after. And this is his third release here, Solemn Moments. And in his trio, Noah Jackson on bass, Jesse Kramer on drums. So we're going to start out with Solemn Moments, his original composition. Uh, This one starts with an eight-bar intro. Uh, There's a syncopated pedal tone bass note in the piano and bass under moving chords. Wilson plays the first section of the melody simply with a light touch and Kramer has a light clicky groove going on the drums. Has a little melancholy feel to it but turns happy over the course of the melody. After a repeat the swing feel picks up on the B section of the melody in the cymbals and in Wilson's chords. And when we hear the original melody again that line, Wilson adds some more chiming harmony to it. He gets started on a solo, showing a nice sense of touch on lightly repeated notes. He plays some nice rising high register lines and gets swinging more with high percussive chords. At about three minutes and 10 seconds, things break into a real swing over Jackson's walking bass for a while, but they pull it back into the original groove for a reset with the intro and melody again. Jackson gets a bass solo of lines bubbling out of the low register and working into some melodic ideas. The vamp out 
onto the intro section idea, and then they slow it down for a soft ending. I like the shifting rhythm feel here and how it pushes like the swing is just waiting to break out of the tune. And it's interesting to end up the tune with a bass solo. So mm. fun start. Track two, another Thelonious Monk tune, We See. Uh, a fun intro with punchy chords from Wilson and tight drum fills from Kramer. They give it a great relaxed swing feel, and Wilson gets some of that quirky monkish phrasing feel. More nice punchy chords, rolling figures and trills, and tight trio work with more cool drum fills. Wilson plays a really melodic and smooth solo here over hard-hitting left-hand chords. I like the spaces of anticipation he leaves between phrases and how he builds up to more chiming chord ideas Contrasting with the smooth lines, Jackson gets a bass solo with a lot of rhythmic variety, and next they really pound it out for some percussive trading of fours with Kramer's drums. They work it through a final B and A section of the melody and an outro, like the intro to finish it up. Track three is another Wilson original, Misnomer. It's a minor bluesy mood on this one. There's an eight-bar section with very cool bass and left-hand piano lines, and then an eight-bar section of piano melody. They repeat those sections with Wilson getting some animation with rolling figures the second time. Great light brush work from Kramer here. Comes down soft for a bass solo from Jackson with soft, taut, and bluesy lines. There's cool speedy triplets and rhythmic repeated notes in there as well. He turns to a chugging walk, and now Wilson is up for a solo. It's melodic and bluesy, swinging hard, with lines building into chiming chords. He really gets rollicking, and Kramer works up fills between chords into a fine short drum solo that connects back to another run through the melody sections with some final phrase repeats to a fun ending. Track four is another an original tune, Una Pa Rosita, and the notes on Bandcamp say this piece was inspired during a stay-at-home order when Wilson's child observed the transition of a caterpillar to a butterfly. Wow. It's a very gentle piano entrance by Wilson into this ballad over Jackson's soft bass pulse. Kramer's brushes are barely perceptible, swishing underneath. The melody has a kind of infectious phrase that gets repeated a lot, gets stuck in your head. Seems to be a 28-measure construction. It's very slow and floats along, giving Wilson a chance to show a nice sense of phrasing touch and lush chords. And Wilson continues on soling, starting with the sparse, understated ideas uh, evoking the melody shapes. A great sense of touch. After 16 bars, he passes it off to Jackson for a bass solo, who gets way up high and has some cool interval ideas in his lines and some neat harmonized figures and glisses too. Uh, Wilson returns with the final melody sections to a delicate and pretty ending. Another Wilson original for track five, A Familiar Feeling, parentheses, Benny's Beat. A medium slow swing beat and a bluesy melody. They go through the A section a couple times. There's a contrasting B section with the first of some irresistible pregnant pauses that build up the tension into some percussive and rollicking swinging that builds as they go on. Nice drum fills from Kramer to beat it up under Wilson's hammering bluesy chords. And Wilson contrasts lazy bluesy phrasing with huge chord buildups and tasty rolling figures. Jackson gets a bluesy solo too in between huge chord explosions from Wilson, who plays some tasty soft backing. Nice dynamic contrast here. They take it through the melody sections for a final fun romp to the end. Great fun on this track. We're going to get a little Latin-y now. Luis Bonfa's Manja de Carnaval for track six. There's an eight-bar intro, syncopated chords, and a cool little left-hand piano bass figure to set up the minor melody that has a longing feel to it. Kramer has a light bossa click groove 
uh, moving things along. A nice soft but rhythmic touch by Wilson with some tasty ornaments. We hear the intro section again as it transitions to a Wilson solo that he starts with snappy, bluesy figures. He weaves nice melodic ideas here, working into a section of rhythmic chords. Jackson gets some bass solo sections with some speedy lines and a chord section interlude between them on the piano. They work through the melody again and take it out with the intro section. Track 7, La Media Vuelta by Jose Alfredo Jimenez. This is a solo piano piece here. It's uh, The tune is a Mexican ranchera, and so Wilson starts with a light exposition of the melody. His left hand has a kind of Bill Evansy alternating low note and then chord figure accompaniment to it. It gets some bigger chord backing, working into a little pause after one minute, and then gets more of a jazz ballad flow going to the piece. Around 2 minutes and 10 seconds, it gets joyful with some ringing high notes before getting quieter and slower to a lush ending, nice chords, and some final delicate melody notes. We're going to end up with Hmm. Chopin, Nocturne in E flat major. Um, We get a rather straight Chopin piano classical type solo intro uh, to a rising line at 20 seconds, and there Kramer gets some tight brushwork going to set the rhythm, and then Wilson gets Chopin swinging. It's a fun melody to hear this way, and Wilson finds little spots to make it bluesy as well. His interpretation and chords are a bit Dave Brubeckish, I found here. Hmm. Jackson changes up from snappy two-note figures to a chugging walk underneath in sections, and it really sails along. Wilson brings it down soft with rhythmic chords and little melody figures before launching into a swinging solo, a melodic lines working at the big chiming chords, and some spots for Kramer to fill into an animated drum solo. They work it back for another swing through the melody, getting softer with rhythmic chords to the end and a final fun bass line from Jackson right before the final chord. So I think Wilson should give a money-back guarantee for this recording. If you don't like it, you must not have a pulse. Uh, (laughs) This trio really swings hard, but that's not all. There's some good Latin grooves, nice mix of Wilson's originals, and an interesting mix of other material from Monk to Mexico to Chopin. Uh, Where do you get all that in one recording? Uh, Wilson swings with excitement, but also has a great subtle touch in contrast. Nice melodic solo ideas. I also enjoyed Jackson's centered bass tone and interesting solos. And Kramer keeps it all precise with everything from subtle brush backing to really kicking in fills and energetic solos. I'm going to be listening to this one a lot. Yeah, probably me too. I want to also mention that uh, this album is uh, available on Bandcamp as a CD for $7, which is really cheap. <laughs> Too I'm going to I'm gonna have to look into that. Yeah. Um, but you can also, of course, get it as a sound, as a, I guess, an MP3 file or in whatever format you're looking for. Anyway, when I was listening to this last week, you'll remember it was, uh, this is dreary, cold weather. It was a very cold week last mm. week. And uh, this is such a sunny album that it just kind of, warmed up yeah. the days a little bit or maybe that was the whiskey but I think it was a little bit of <laughs> a I little think, both I think it was a little of both there were indeed solemn moments on the album and in the title track but the overarching feeling was one of warmth and cheerfulness and as Russ said a lot of swing provides that quality the operating word for me was cheerful the recording is transparent I actually thought to mention that because you're right yeah. it, it really is uh, great great sounding yeah. captures the warmth and detail of the performance the album is filled with warmth there are some appealing chord voicings throughout especially in Mania de Carnaval which mm. kind of drew my ear in and the jazzed up version of uh, Chopin's uh, Nocturne that's opus 9 number 2 which everybody who's ever played the piano has played at one point, uh, was appealing too. I'm not sure this piece has ever gotten the uh, jazz treatment before. It's 
good as a swing yeah. rhythm. Nice chord changes there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so pick that up and also look for his uh, two earlier releases as well. And I'm really eager to see where he goes doing more of his own original compositions in the future. A really swinging and melodic pianist. We're going to end up the jazz section with uh, one of our favorite keyboard men. And not only uh, piano here, but we've got a collection of heavy hitters. Yeah. Or as they might say in New York, monsters. Monsters. <laughs> They're monster players. Yeah. Here. Uh, who are these heavy hitters? Well, actually, the album is a kind of a joint program of compositions by the great Mike Ledon and Eric Alexander saxophonist, but uh, we also have Jeremy Pelt on trumpet, and we've got Vincent Herring on sax as well, alto sax, Peter Washington on bass, and Kenny Washington on drums. Now, we've heard most of these guys on the podcast before, but especially Mike Ladon. Mm. Uh, episode 17, Bach, Bulgaria, Bajewski, Hammond B3, and Big Band, and that was with one of our favorite recordings of the year, It's All Your Fault, right? Um, which we found out was something that uh, Dr. Lonnie Smith used to say to uh, Mike, Mike Ladon whenever he would meet him. He would just say, it's all yeah, your it's fault. It's all your fault, Mike, yeah. Yeah, without anything having happened. Yeah. And, and we, should, we should also mention, we talked to Mike yeah. Ladon too. That's so how we that. found out. We did our interview. So if you uh, go through our programs, uh, look for interview number one. It wasn't our first interview, but it was the first one we published. Right. And uh, Mike told us all about uh, that great recording, Oregon and Big Band. Uh, that was on Savant label by the way, and it made our best of 2021 albums. And then, well, well we've also heard uh, the Washington, Peter Washington, Kenny Washington, with another one of our favorite albums, the uh, Bill Charlop Trio from yeah. 2021 as well. So they regularly uh, play together with him. And uh, also, we've got on guitar a guest here. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. You know, he's only on one track, though. Yeah, it's Raleigh this... Misik, maybe. Yeah, uh, probably. Serbian guitarist. So this recording was made at the Rudy Van Gelder Englewood Cliffs studio. In so, New Jersey. New Jersey. <laughs> with Monster Players, right? Monster Plays um, in New Jersey. By Maureen Sickler. And that was recorded in May of 2022. <laughs> All right, it's on, you should mention it's on Cellar Music. And there's one other thing I want to mention about this. It's a little odd. Mm. The title, uh, the CD is called The Heavy Hitters. But if you look for this on uh, streaming, it's only Heavy Hitters without the The. Oh, which is kind of odd. So it, it, it might mess up your search a little bit. So just keep that in mind when you're looking for it. And congratulations, before we get into this, to Seller Live. I mean, not only is Corey Weeds churning out lots of great recordings, uh, the Ed Cherry we did last week, but they got a Grammy Award. Yeah, congratulations. That's fantastic. Yeah, for, and it's, um, a, it's a really small label. I think it's only maybe an office of one person I don't know. doing when, all this, as far we, as we know. Whenever we've written, if we've had a question about yeah. uh, something like the Brian Charette recording, Corey answers us. So yeah. uh, yeah. seems to be uh, him taking on most of the responsibilities there right. and uh, doing a great job. But with the uh, Stephen Feifke yeah. uh, Generations Big Band, it was really nice to see uh, them get some recognition. Uh, yeah. that label. Yeah. So keep up the good work, Corey Weeds yeah. there. Yeah, we'd like to recommend some other labels to the Grammys that they should be listening to, yeah. too. Maybe we'll do that later. We'll do that later. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, let's get into here. We've got uh, three tunes from Eric Alexander and six from Mike Ladon, several of which are nods to jazz greats, starting with the first one, a Mike Ladon tune called Hub. If you're a jazz listener, just a little taste of this will let you know that that's Mr. Freddie Hubbard. Um, it starts with some rubato horn lines 
to some drumming, then cool modal fanfare-like lines into more legato lines alternating with drums. Uh, Kenny Washington gets a steady beat going, and Mike Lidon gets some percussive piano chords setting the modal mood. A few tricky, fast, harmonized horn lines make up the melody, and Jeremy Pelt is off on a solo. Now, I've always liked his playing but I've never heard him as on fire as he is on this album. Yeah. It just sounds awesome. And he's taken all of his Freddie Hubbard vitamins and <laughs> uh, going into his system and capturing his spirit well, but still keeping his own personality here. Great solo. Uh, Herring follows with snaking and fast double time lines, but he contrasts with longer held notes, getting some modal melodies in there and more clipped rhythmic ideas as well. Great sound with a searing edge to his tone. I always liked that about his playing. Alexander follows that on tenor, starting in the lower register and working around. Uh, there's always some Coltrane-like ideas in his playing, but he has a real unique kind of harmonic sense of his own. His solos are always interesting and a great smooth sound, but he can get a real nice edge and some interesting kind of harmonic things going on when he wants it. Ladon follows with some kind of descending dissonant ideas into fun two-handed figures, and then chord ideas in his solo. Gets into some runs and cool two-hand zippy ideas. Listen to the bass underneath that. Peter Washington's chug is really furious uh, driving this tune along. And Kenny Washington gets a drum solo. Subtle snare and tom work here. Nice anticipation building spaces mixed in. And one more kind of ominous rubato horn line and a final cry from Pelt to finish it up. Nice nod to Freddie Hubbard's composition and playing style from Jeremy Pelt. Yeah, of which I know you're a big fan because you talk about Freddie Hubbard a lot yeah, to me. Yeah. He was my favorite player right. uh, when I was young. I have all his recordings and I had the chance to spend some time and talk to him uh, oh, when wow. he came to Osaka. Maybe it was 2003, the new composer's octet. Right. It was a Tuesday night. I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but it was a slow night and there wasn't a lot of people coming out. And the uh, manager asked me to stick around for the second set, which almost never happens yeah. <laughs> in Japan. And the band took a break. And so I got to uh, hang out with Xavier Davis yeah. and uh, Steve Davis on trombone and talk to Freddie Hubbard too. So that wow. was really cool. Amazing. Uh, yeah. All right. Track two, another Mike Ladon tune, A New Day. Uh, this one's got a rubato intro. Uh, from Mike Ladon with a nice forward push, some rolling figures, upward runs. He gets a 6-8 rhythmic feel going and everyone joins in. Uh, seems to be a 24-bar melody. Horn lines exchange with measures of piano, saxes backing, and then Pelt's horn taking the lead sound in sections. Pelt's up for a solo again. More lilting kind of phrases here with nice space to start into some searing lines. Uh, listen to the cool rhythmic bass lines of Peter Washington below. Alexander follows with lines of connected flitting figures working into repeated riff and then speedy lines and some cool false fingering riffs there too. Herring's next with a shorter smoothly phrased solo getting some edge at the end and Mike Ladonna's last mixing percussive chords with a lot of cool fast twinkly figures and a final big flurry of sound for a climax and he takes it back into another round of the melody with some final phrase repeats to build it up to the end. Track three another Nod, Silver Dust, Michael Don Composition 2. The great mm. Horace Silver, that is. Yeah. A nice medium groove with a clicky beat here. The melody's bluesy, but happy with horn lines and spots for high bluesy piano fills. Ladon solos first on this one. Starts with some Silver-esque, simple snappy right-hand ideas, working into more speedy ideas. 
Uh, the Washingtons get the groove swinging along more overwalking bass, and Ladon gets snappy chord ideas and a great funky feeling going on his solo. Uh, Herring has a solo next with a nice contrast between relaxed phrases and more edgy fast figures. And then Pelt follows that with a very bluesy solo here, nicely spaced out phrases and great articulation. Some cool Woody Shaw-like interval ideas and some back and forth between high and low lines. Alexander comes after that with a smooth phrase solo, getting into some angsty squawks and a great speedy final climax. Once more around the fun melody to take it out. Track four, another Mike Ledon tune, Un Dia Es Un Dia. A day is a day, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Kenny Washington gives a drum intro to this one. There's a four-note syncopated horn line that repeats into some more drum fills and a bouncy Latin horn melody of trumpet and alto over a different tenor line, crying it out. Uh, another short horn section over agitated piano figures, and then Herring is up to solo with well-connected melodic ideas. Alexander follows him, working up to some angsty and then cool altissimo Latin lines to finish his solo. Ladon's next with an exciting and bouncy Latin piano solo. Then the horns have some fun interplay lines for Pelt to get started on an exciting solo. Really high cries, some cool false fingering. And then Peter Washington keeps an ostinato bass idea going for Kenny to get some drum soloing fun. And they get another run through the melody sections. Pelt getting some final solo ideas over the repeating sax figures as it fades out. Nice fun horn interplay on this tune. Track five, we're going to switch over to an Eric Alexander composition, Big Richard. And this was a dedication to his father. Uh, it's a chimey solo piano intro from Mike Ladon. Alexander comes in on the ballad melody. Listen to the speedy fills he adds in the 12th measure. It's a ballad tune, but really nice kind of sprinkle of excitement there. Seems to be a 24-bar melody length in total. Ladon follows next with a solo, starting over great ringing bass notes from Peter Washington. A nice touch in the upper register. Rising runs rhythmic figures with nice hesitation. Very nice solo. Uh, Alexander solos next, getting some great fast and smooth cascading figures, navigating the chords, and then fast flowing lines, smooth and fabulous tone. He continues on connecting back to another run through the melody. They slow it down at the end for some final flurries from Alexander over a little bowed bass note. Uh, really wonderful playing here. He's got such a smooth sax tone and nice piece for his father. Track six, another Alexander tune, Chainsaw. This is a bluesy and fun tune. Uh, seems like a 24-bar melody. Cool alternating bass and left-hand piano and horn lines. There's some great syncopation in the horn parts here. They go around it twice. And then Serbian guitarist Raleigh Michik, if I'm saying his name right, gets a solo. A huge, big-bodied guitar tone and fluid, but snappy articulation and lots of bluesy ideas. Herring's next with some real edge and bluesy feel taking things into a little harmonic tension in his solo. And then Pelt follows with a well-constructed solo to a fun, rhythmic, and bluesy climax. Alexander follows him, playing some nice speedy bursts of lines in this solo, working up some harmonic tension into squawks and a smooth finish. And then Mike Ladon follows him, starts out with some dense rhythmic chord ideas, gets some zippy lines, some repeated speedy note and interval bluesy ideas and some final percussive chords. And they take it around the melody again, some final vamping out and soloing from Alexander as it fades away. Track seven's an Alexander composition. This is something new. 
And this is based on a chord progression from the saxophonist George Coleman. It starts out with a fun series of exchanges of two-measure horn figures and solo drums with some longer horn lines that also make up the melody. I'm not sure of the form of this one. Uh, the total length of the melody seems to be 50 measures. Uh, and then it goes right into a, a solo from Alexander. Smooth and connected ideas. Uh, Herring follows with an interesting start of false fingering notes which return later on in a solo that consistently pushes ahead. Pelt is next with a lighter and boppy solo this time. Nice smooth phrasing. And Ladon is next really driving his phrases with punchy left-hand chords and moving some cool licks that he brings around the chords. And we hear the same idea again. Uh, they take it around the melody of horn and drum exchanges once more to finish it up. Back to Mike Ladon's composition, Cedarland. Another nod here, Cedar Walton the great jazz pianist. Uh, it's got a solo piano intro, some great flourishes from Ladon. The horns come in on a really syncopated 16-bar minor melody line that's synced up with what Kenny Washington locks in to on the drums. Then things are off to a driving swing with the solo from Mike Ladon. It's really driving with great bluesy ideas. Alexander has a sassy and bouncy solo on this one with some slick lines. Pelt follows, including some Freddie Hubbard-like clipped staccato interval ideas. And Herring has some smooth phrases and a real wailing kind of line in his solo. And then Kenny and Peter Washington get some bass and drum exchanges. They take it through the melody with a slowdown on the end for some final flourishes by Mike Ladon underneath. And we're going to end it up with a 12-bar blues. Mike Ladon blues it. Ladon takes around uh, over the trio once for himself uh, before the horns come in with the melody of snappy short phrases and a nice drum break in the final bar. Uh, they go around it once more, and Alexander comes out of that break in a solo. He gets some great bluesy cries in between some more reaching and fast snaking lines. Pelt has a sassy and bluesy solo, a little half-valve note in there, and he uses the short phrase idea from the melody in his solo nicely. Herring is smooth and before getting into some rippling double time lines all with great bluesy melodic ideas and here Mike Ladon gets a bouncy bluesy solo with some speedy lines too Peter Washington has a bass solo some cool triplet lines bluesy licks and Kenny gets the last word on the drums and they take it around the melody twice to end it so the heavy hitters some of the top players out there showing us that there's still a lot of life and creativity in the hard bop idiom a fun original tunes, enthusiastic ensemble playing with great solos showing off their unique personalities uh, that come shining through in each tune. Uh, I never get tired of listening to any of these players in any combination. You can hear a lot of uh, Harry and Alexander's recordings together, a great live recording they did as well. But put them all together, you've got a real powerhouse group. Yeah, heavy hitters indeed. This really knocked me out, to be honest. Um, I think it's really a must-hear album if you're a jazz mm. fan. Some great playing. And even with all that great playing, I really thought, you had even mentioned this too, that uh, Jeremy Pelt really stood out. Yeah. He really wails throughout the album. He certainly grabbed my ear. Mm. Uh, it's it's the, the best I've ever heard him too. And I yeah. think you've heard him a lot more than I have. And uh, you, you had said something similar. I think my only complaint about this is that the recording is a bit thin on the bass end. The bass mm. is kind of far back. It's faint in the mix. Mm. Otherwise, though, it's clean and clear, capturing the brass instruments, which are very upfront and brassy. They sound fantastic. And uh, the quality of their sounds is particularly well caught. Yeah. The performances are all great. Uh, standouts for me being 
as, as I said, Jeremy Pelt, um, who sounds uniquely inspired on this album. He's got a hot sound and he's athletic in his playing. And I also like Vincent Herring a lot too. Equally athletic and energetic playing. And also the hard-hitting Kenny Washington on drums. When he plays with Bill Sharlap, he doesn't hit the drums this hard. He sounds a lot different here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Mike LaDonna is also impressive on piano. It was good good to hear him there. I think this is an exciting album and people should hear it. It's got that New York kind of uh, high energy kicking ahead. Lots of good rhythms. Every tune is sort of like pushing it forward. It's got a lot of different personalities expressed in the solos and kind of wondering what they're going to think of next, what kind of mood is going to come out of this tune. So yeah, definitely check it out. Mike Ladon is one of our you know favorite players and it's interesting. He can express two different personalities in his organ playing and piano playing. When we talked to him last time, I asked him if he had, you know, a piano recording in the works coming up. And at that time he didn't know, but I'm glad that this one came out and uh, he got these uh, players together for it. Uh, yeah, it was really exciting. It's pretty fantastic and it really should, mm. shouldn't be missed. And there it is. There it is. Yeah. Two years of adult music. Two years of adult music. What was that? Uh, what was that Beatles line from that song? It was two years ago today. <laughs> adult music began to play. <laughs> yeah. Is that how it goes? It was more I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember. It was more years than that. Twenty okay. years. I think we got to wait was, more. Yeah, huh? but, okay. Uh, well, yeah. I want to tell you a little. So we we got through a lot of uh, music today, and uh, in about two hours. So, hmm. so I just want to. Um, it reminds me of a story about uh, Richard Strauss. He used to like to play. Um, I guess it was whist, the card game hmm. after like concerts. So if the concert was going long, he, he would he would conduct the orchestra faster so he could get to his game on time. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, we're we're we've got this big dinner spread waiting for us downstairs. And yeah. I'm wondering if we're just kind of trying to get through this faster to uh, Could to be. get to that to the big second anniversary feast. Yeah, it's a little earlier in the day than we usually record, too. So There it is. Two years yeah. of adult music. Thank you, listeners, for uh, finding us, being with us. Tell all your friends about us. Yeah. Thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Always catches the eye. And actually, we don't uh, have a preview for you for next week because we're going to hash that out over some uh, barbecued ribs uh, oh. later. We're recording a, a day earlier than usual, so... Uh, we haven't worked this out yeah, yet. What we're going to do next up week. For next yeah. week. Could yeah. go in a number of different directions. But if you want to find out, get those recordings soon after this episode gets published. A few hours later, I'll put up the playlist. Yeah, I think one of them might be a Hyperion recording, so you won't oh. be able to hear that one. But yeah. we'll give you the uh, site. Yeah, so give you the link to that. To it, yeah. So you can check out on Deezer to get that or come over to our Facebook page and I post a link to the Deezer playlist if you want to know the recordings for the following week and you can start listening early. Otherwise, be sure to check back during the week. Come over to Facebook. I'll put up lots of new jazz recordings as they come out uh, that we may or may not get to on the podcast. So if you need some new listening during the week, I can always come over there after I scour the new release lists early in the morning, 4.30 with my coffee. There I am <laughs> wow. rubbing, rubbing my eyes and That's uh, impressive. listening to them. That's impressive. Yeah, I don't want to miss anything, you know? Yeah. And um, what's the weekend now? I actually didn't have time to check them today because I was uh, smoking those ribs. So tomorrow I'll have to do uh, extra, <laughs> extra homework, but uh, all in the name of finding the best uh, music to listen to. So that's right. always time well worth spending. Doing Absolutely. Like that, so. All right, there we go. It's time for us to go celebrate our second anniversary. See what Mrs. Russ has got going down in the kitchen down there. And, we, uh, yeah, wish you could be here with us, listeners. Yeah, One day. <laughs> but, uh, maybe we'll put up a picture. 
if uh, we feel photogenic later. Oh, we should do that now, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, we'll be back again next week for episode 103. So until then, keep listening. Gerald Albright, Maria Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Duke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that Something Came From Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you. Thank you.